You're listening to KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a moment.
All right. Way to start the show there. That's C3. And you're hearing it here live on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And it's about uh, six or seven minutes after 11 o'clock on the 18th of September, 2006. It's Mike, and glad to be with you all tonight. All right. Hey, uh, thanks, first of all, to Debbie. Debbie Johnson, as always, Free Range Radio Theater at 10 p.m., one hour before this program every Monday. More Isaac Asimov, and she'll be wrapping up uh, wrapping up that series next week. Great stuff from Debbie, as always, on Free Range Radio Theater. Before that, uh, Kelvin and Jason doing it up, as always. Jazz plus blues equals alt-rock, indie, punk, fusion, emo, acoustic, metal, <laughs> and stuff. Uh, tech Radio, as always, before that, Jeff Wheeler, early on with the Uncommon Light. 3 to 5 p.m., getting things going every Monday for us. Okay, so um, it's Mike Hagan. You are listening to Radio Orbit. We made it through another September 11th. Had a very interesting talk last week, as usual, with Richard K. Moore. And uh, enjoyed the tunes of Lizzie West and TWB. Thanks to Lizzie and Tony for the music. And thanks to Richard for thought-provoking conversation, as always. Richard K. Moore, of course, author of the recently released book, Escaping the Matrix, How We the People Can Change the World. Great stuff. But i got to tell you, though, it, uh, I think he's excluded and underestimated a biggie like a lot of people have, and it's my platform. But the whole symbiosis idea and uh, relationship with the plants and the planet, this is the biggie. And I... You know, I, 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 re, I remain personally convinced, you know, that personal transformation must, and uh, and cultural transformation. You can only change yourself. And so, if you're looking for personal transformation, I suggest you begin by looking at the Johns Hopkins University Department of Neuroscience and Psychiatry, Behavioral Biology, and look at the research of Dr. Roland Griffiths. And the study released in July about the amazing experiences induced by one encounter with psilocybin. One encounter. One evening. One evening. You get a clean disc, debugged and virus-free. And, uh, and in the time frame we're looking at, I mean, I mean, we don't appear to have a whole lot of time to dally around. You know, to go spend 15 years sweeping the floor at the ashram or whatever. So, for me... I don't know. That seems like a reasonable option, you know. And you know something else? We haven't really talked about it yet, but, but the, the, uh, the implications of this to psychology and psychiatry are something that need to be talked about, too. And uh, that's a long overdue story as well. So anyway, I, I, I digress. If you missed the show last week, it's on the web, www.mikehagan.com. Just uh, sneak over to the archives page. You can download it and share it with your friends or uh, do what you like with it, okay? All right, uh, tonight... A father-son research team live from Australia, Kevin and Matthew Taylor. And they wrote a book about five years ago uh, that's called The Land of No Horizon. And it discusses in scientific fashion uh, the idea that the earth is hollow or part of, or part of a hollow system. It's, an, it's, it's, it's a wild story. Uh, and, and we'll see what it's all about in about, oh, I don't know, 45 50 minutes or so, Kevin and Matthew Taylor, the authors of Land of No Horizon. And uh, as always, don't discount this out of hand. They're 
strange things afoot. So <laughs> so we'll just uh, let them lay it out for us, and you make what you like of it, okay? All right, we'll mix in a little bit of music from our friend C3, a few of whom will be joining us uh, tonight, a couple of which are already here. And they'll be in the studio with me in a little while. We've got great independent music from mid-Missouri. And we started things out there, as a matter of fact, with a cut from their V8 show back in December 2004 at the Ragtag Theater, Ragtag uh, Cinema and Cafe right here in Columbia. Uh, and that was great stuff, and they've been doing it ever since. I think, what are you, I think they're on 14 or 15. And uh, we'll clarify all this stuff with the guys from C3 in just a little bit, all right? Hey, there's one other thing I wanted to mention before we play a little bit more music here. Um, uh, I spoke with Star Newland and Michael Heisen today, and they met with a bunch of people from the Navy on Friday. Real interesting story. I'm not sure if the folks out there who are listening are familiar with um, one of the major concerns that we have, those of us that are interested in the in the, the welfare and the and the life of uh, dolphins and whales, is this thing that's used by lots of navies around the the planet, but primarily by the U.S. Navy. It's called low-frequency active sonar. And it, it, uh, most people have seen it. If you've seen a story about it, it it'll say L-F-A-S. That's, that might, those, those letters might ring a bell. But at any rate, low-frequency active sonar is uh, a method that the Navy uses to, you know, to watch the oceans and to listen to the sea and find out if there are enemy boats uh, in the vicinity and this sort of thing. But, uh, but low-frequency active sonar is very dangerous to animals that rely on sound as a primary means of data input. Uh, imagine if you're a creature that, that has a super-sensitive ability to hear and, and, and all of a sudden your local environment is blasted with you know, a particular frequency of sound that that is just absolutely overwhelming to the system. And so, uh, anyway, for, for, for many years, Michael Heisen, Dr. Michael Heisen and, and Star Newland have been working and uh, trying to raise awareness of, of the effects of this stuff on our cetacea buddies out there in the ocean. And it is absolutely devastating to, to, to whales and dolphins. There's been a tremendous amount of uh, uh, corroborative research done now that shows that you know when these things are being used when they're active at least when we know they're being active you know we have corresponding beachings and uh, all kinds of nasty things that happen to whales and dolphins and it's directly related to low frequency active sonar so at any rate uh, that, that's really not an argument anymore uh, the argument has always been well does anybody give a damn <laughs> and uh uh Star and Michael actually made what, in their own words, was great progress uh, on Friday when they met with a bunch of big shots from the Navy in Hawaii. So we'll speak with them, I don't know when, uh, we're sort of booked up for the next month or so, but uh, uh, certainly we'll have big uh, news from them next time we talk to Star and Dr. Michael, uh, probably in November sometime. But you might go over to planetpuna.com and just see... uh, what's going on over there. I'm sure they'll post something if they haven't already. Uh, but progress being made on many fronts. And so it's not all bad news everywhere, okay? All right, uh, let's see, what else? Okay, uh, quarter after 11, stick around, okay? There's a lot in store. Let me throw something else on here for you and uh, get my act together. I'll be back in a few minutes. 
It is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. Check us all out on the web at kopn.org. And if you're interested in my stuff, uh, hop on the web again and go to MikeHagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. The show tonight and every Monday night is streaming uh, on the web via CosmicWavesRadio.com. Thanks to the people over there. And anybody listening on the web, we say hello. So, all right, we'll talk to everybody in just a few minutes. Let's hear a little, uh, a little more here from um, uh, from C3, and we'll hear more from the guys directly in just a few minutes. I'm a little premature there. I want to start that one from the beginning. This is called uh, "So Many Snakes," the Snake Whistle Blues. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. Back in a minute.
you guys. I'm going to leave this on in the background for a minute here. It's just too good not to talk over this stuff. This is Tathagata. Actually, I thought it was So Many Snakes. We'll play that in just a, uh, just a little while here, but um, great stuff from C3, and we'll talk to a couple of the guys from C3 in just a few minutes here. But it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And let me take care of this really quickly here. Uh, program support from KOPN comes from Colors. Colors is an educational organization made up of local independent businesses, community organizations, and citizen members who would like you to know that local stores and town centers require comparatively little infrastructure and make more efficient use of public services relative to big box stores and strip shopping malls. Information is available at colorsalliance.org. Colors dollars participants for the upcoming fund drive include a la Champagne, and uh, Kaleidoscope Video Conferencing and Lifestyles Furniture. Yeah, all right. All right, everybody, that was C3. And again, that's a tune that was called Tatha Gata. We'll be back with some more from them in just a little while here. It's Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. On the web at MikeHagan, H-A-G-A-N dot com, and also K-O-P-N dot O-R-G. All right, hi to everybody listening over the web, live or otherwise. We are streaming now and every week via Cosmic Waves Radio Network on the web, CosmicWavesRadio dot com. Thanks to everybody over there, the girls and guys, for making it happen every week live on the net. And thanks also to my friend Larry, the web wizard, as always, doing great stuff. Uh... Escaping the Matrix desktop and screensaver on the web there if you want to go check that out and download it. Real cool stuff that Larry put together last week. Also, uh, to everybody out there sending art and music, awesome stuff. Speaking of that, I've got a wonderful piece of uh, video uh, production that was just handed to my hot little hand here from my friend Bob. And I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but I tell you, I've been waiting for it for a long time. It's an interesting study on biofeedback. And uh, I can't wait to check that out. I also got a great piece of artwork from Deborah. Thank you very much last week. One of these days I'll get some technology and I'll be able to scan stuff like that and then put it up on the web in the um, in the art gallery for, for other people to see. But thank you so much to everybody who sends that stuff and music as well. Thanks. Send more. And if I haven't played it yet, I'll try to. And if I, if I don't, sorry. If I do... I'll say something about it, and we'll share it with other people, all right? Okay, as I said, on the web, MikeHagan.com, you'll have access to all the stuff I'm talking to, everything that we're doing, all the archives, all the music, all the programs, and um, we're doing our best to put it out there for you, okay? All right, um, one other thing, my friends Jeff and William from Yachai, they've got a new project in the works, and I've been looking forward to it. It's called the Insect Sessions, and it's done. 
And there's a new website, which I can't recall exactly right now, but just go to my site right on the front page there, and I think Larry's got a link over there. And I'm sure they have some free downloads for you and some interesting new music from the guys from Yachai. All right? Okay, uh, the forum has been revitalized. <laughs> and there are some interesting topics being discussed over there. <laughs> for how long, who knows? Uh, the, we, have, we have a live chat room that's up and active uh, tonight as well. And we'll be peeking in there from time to time uh, for questions and comments. As I said, Kevin and Matthew Taylor, the authors of Land of No Horizon, will be talking about hollow earth theories uh, coming up at midnight. Before that, we've got the guys from C3. They'll be in here in just a second. Um, Let me give out my contact information really quickly, though. My email address, orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. On the web, MikeHagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. And a couple quick things, upcoming guests tonight, Kevin and Matthew Taylor. Next week, Yesha Dorje. We're talking about healing with sound. Um, the jury's still out for me on this one, but I'm going I'm to go into it with an open mind, and we're going to speak with Yesha Dorje next week. Uh, Dr. Alan Goldstein on the 2nd of October. We'll speak again with Dr. Goldstein. He was on a few months ago in May, I think, and we spoke about nanobiotechnology and some of the things that are happening in in that realm that are just absolutely outrageous. Uh, The breaking of the carbon barrier, which is basically the end of life as we know it and the beginning of something else. (laughs) But anyway, Alan Goldstein on the uh, the 2nd of October. Jonathan Zapp on the 9th. Dale Pendel, Jim Beard. I'm still trying to get Roland Griffiths. Trying to get Jose Yacaman. Anyway, all that stuff coming up, right? So tune in. And we'll continue to try to bring you some uh, interesting programs, okay? All right, uh, let's see. I'm going to throw on a little bit more music here. And as I do, I'll just keep talking. Maybe these guys outside that can shuffle in here. Jeff and and, uh, Dick Cravens are out there. And uh, I think Mike's here, too. At any rate, uh, we'll say hello in just a moment to uh, the guys from C3. Check this out, though.
So many snakes. There, I finally did it justice. I missed it on the first take, but that was not a miss on the second one. So many snakes. The snake whistle blues. That's C3 from uh, one of their first performances. Uh, at any rate, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, I've got a few of the gentlemen from C3 in the studio with me here. But let me say something really quickly beforehand. I forgot before the break to mention that uh, Dr. Len Horowitz, I was going to have him on the air briefly during this first hour tonight, but we couldn't work out the schedule. He wasn't um, available. And he's in Hawaii uh, on the Big Island 
and is a, an associate of Michael and uh, and Star, and I mentioned them earlier. But anyway, there's a there's a story that's developing there that he's really concerned about that has to do with tuberculosis and uh, testing and vaccination of children, and I thought it was important and I wanted to spend some time on it but we weren't able to do it tonight so we're going to do it next week and we'll have Len Horowitz on during the first hour of the program next week to talk about whatever's happening in Hawaii and in between now and then I'll get some stuff on the website and uh, we can get uh, up to speed on what's happening before we have Dr. Len Horowitz on the air with us next week okay all right so uh, uh, it is uh, Mike it's Radio Orbit it's KOPN it's community radio, which is why we're experiencing all the trouble with our headphones, as we always do. But it's no big deal, because we've done tougher things, right, yeah, Jeff? Sure have. And uh, joining me here in the studio, we've got Jeff Wheeler, Dick Cravens, and Mike Robertson, uh, three of the revolving members of C3, hmm. the Conspiracy Convergence Collective. That's Actually. close. <laughs> <laughs> I say it different every time I say it, you know. Yeah, well, sure. What are they, nine different ways? Yeah, at least. <laughs> anyway, uh, hello, you guys. Thanks for coming down. Thank yeah, you. Thank thanks. you for having me. Thank you, Mike. All right, so uh, what's the latest? We've uh, I, I actually play, I, I play you, you know, uh, some of that stuff from, from V8 uh, mm-hmm. often enough, and we featured you on a, on a show that we did uh, with Terrence McKenna. About a year ago, mm-hmm. and of course your twenty uh, the, the twenty twelve theme fits in with Terrence's material. But uh, anyway, what's up lately? You guys have a show coming up, I know, on Saturday. And we do have a show coming up this Saturday, uh, September twenty third, down in Cooper's Landing. Uh, we're going to start our first set about seven p.m. and uh, play for an hour. Then we're going to take a break, and uh, we'll play uh, again from nine to ten. We're going to do two sets. We're basically going to paint a portrait of the Missouri River, uh, or attempt to. <laughs> uh, that's 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 the, the instruction to the group is think about the origins of the Missouri River up in Canada, and as it tumbles down the down the mountain sides and picks up speed and gains energy and goes through storms, and <laughs> we're going to try to express that. Uh, I don't know if everyone knows, but when we perform, it's entirely improvised music. Uh, we we don't uh, write any music. We we don't actually prepare at all, except a, a, like this as a concept, mm-hmm. and not all the time that. So this is actually more guidance than we're used to having. <laughs> Starts with the green to show up. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and you know, and there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of precedents for that, and a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but. Uh, uh, so I'm expecting we'll and we'll do two good sets. And the last set will be um, uh, sort of the the last great run out of the river as it runs down to the ocean and, mm. and joins the ocean, and, and it's, a, it's a transcendent moment when the when the river because right the river doesn't disappear. It just uh, right. It just meets the just, ocean. It just sends. It becomes something much larger. You know. Huh. Um, and at the very end, we jump in the river and flow <laughs> downstream. Right, yeah. big, or, big or show get, closer. Yeah, or get thrown <laughs> in with the instruments. <laughs> right, you're floating down on a big base, you know, or something. Sure. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. This is a wonderful. This is like the third time we played down at Cooper's Landing. We're just literally feet away from the river. Oh well, it's a great, uh, it's a great venue, and it's just great vibe down there anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. Both yeah, guitars make excellent panels. 
That's right. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's tell the uh, for, for those that aren't familiar with C3 a little bit about the the nature of what you do. I mean, you on, you only play on the equinoxes and on the solstices, and uh, uh, there's a little bit of a concept behind what you guys do. Yeah, there's we we play close to those dates as close as we can. Right. And we we're lucky out this time. Actually, we're going to play right on the uh, yeah the 23rd, right on the equinox mm-hmm. for the first time. It's always been two or three days away or more uh, in the past. Uh, the uh, uh, this is the Convergence Conspiracy Collective, by the way, not the Collective Convergence, whatever. <laughs> but, like uh, I said, there's nine permutations. There is. Right. different every week. And actually, <laughs> it could be the Convergence Conspiracy Celebration as well, so this may spin out to, you know... And it's just in English. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. The, uh, and what we're celebrating is, uh, is, is this hypothetical, um, hopefully more than hypothetical, breakthrough of... Of uh, consciousness by the uh, by the human race. I mean, it, it, it's a hopeful vision for a future that um, think think the opposite of the apocalypse. I mean, you, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is this is sort of the positive apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. And in, and for convenience, we we position that right at the end of 2012 because that happens to coincide with the with the point at which the Mayan calendar runs out. And uh, so. Um, so we we plan shows uh, for ten years, four times a year, uh, right up through the end of 2012. And at that point, we will have accomplished our mission, for better or worse, and uh, we'll we'll hang up our spurs and and have a big party. And we're done. All right, well, right. That sounds great. There's there's a guy who was on the program a few weeks ago. His name is Jeff Stray, and he wrote a book. It's called uh, Oh, I forget something 2012, but but the subtitle is uh, Ecstasy or Armageddon. Yeah, <laughs> right. And uh, this is the question, and and uh, you know, for this, this is the choice. I, yeah, I would subtitle that. You have a choice. That's right. That's right. right. I think I think I think that's true. And you can um, seek either vision. Yeah. Right. Well, anyway, it's an interesting thing. There are a lot of people that are talking about it. We got six years or so between now and then, so uh, we'll um, enjoy C three music and watch everything as it unfolds. Because I mean, just the world today. Uh, you know, the thing. I mean, I, I I'm look. I was looking at the news stuff that I'm that I'm going to talk about on the program tonight, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you're paying attention, man, <laughs> I yeah. mean, you know, it ain't all, you know, it's amazing what's actually happening out there. And getting more amazing all the time. All yeah. the time and, 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 and at a faster and faster rate. Right. So, I mean, six years from now seems like 600 years at mm-hmm. this point, you know. Yeah. Um, well, you said something a minute ago about paying attention. That's sort of sort of what we're about. We're about paying attention, about, about making choices, about uh, changing you know, at least with music, what we can in our world. Yeah, it's it's about consciousness. It's yeah. about becoming more conscious. And physically, it, when we play music, we're forced to be very aware of each other and ourselves. We're forced to listen in a way that's mm-hmm. you know that's new. And that's that's just one one of many many ways to practice. It's one thing to talk about all these concepts, another to show up in public and demonstrate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Now the shows are great. The, the, I, I've missed the last couple actually because of. Commitments and, and, and I'm going to be at a wedding in St. Louis, unfortunately, on Saturday. Uh, hopefully, the guy who's getting married didn't hear that. Uh, <laughs> but, but, and my wife is still not to have our, our baby. We, I, I figured between last week and this week, we'd have a new yeah. uh, baby to talk about. So, I got a few things that are going on. But anyway, you never know. I, if we have the baby and I can't go to St. Louis, I might, I might be able to make it down to Cooper's Ernie. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I prefer taking her down to the river and let's have the baby down yeah, there. You know? yeah, exactly <laughs> right. With, with musical accompaniment. There, there you go. go. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Oh. Yeah, we'll play during the birthing. That's uh-huh. one way to welcome, the, what I'm talking welcome about. the winner. All right, I tell you what, let's. Um, I'm going to put on a little piece <laughs> of music here because I've got to get two guys on the phone from Australia uh-huh. that we're going to talk to uh, in 20 minutes. So let's play a little bit more of your music. We'll come back. We'll have a few more minutes to talk, and we can uh, mention the website and a little bit more about the show that's coming up, how people can get... Uh, to Cooper's Landing or whatever, if there are sure. tickets or if it's mm-hmm. going to cost anything, whatever. We'll talk about the details. And then we'll um, uh, play some more of your stuff throughout the program tonight when I talk to Kevin and, and Matthew, okay? Lovely. All right, you guys, back in a minute. This is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is more music from C3. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. I'll be back in just a few minutes. On the web, one more time, kopn.org, and uh, Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N dot O-C-O-M dot com, yeah.
All right, check it out. We're just going to leave this on in the background. This stuff just goes on and on. If you haven't seen C3, you guys, uh, it's tough you know, to find a five-minute track or less. Trust me, these are 30 minutes, and they just it, it's awesome stuff, and it morphs into all kinds of different things. Uh, but uh, we got the you got a little Pink Floyd thing going on here or something. I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We've got some C3 fired up in the background. We'll be listening to their music throughout the rest of the program tonight. We got uh, Mike and Dick and uh, Jeff in the studio with the, with with me here. So, and we got a couple more minutes, you guys. Let's talk a little bit more about the project and the website. Maybe what's what's the web address? Um, you can find us at uh, c3.us, but c3 is spelled out c e e t h r e e dot us. Okay. Also, uh, convergenceconspiracycollective.com and thoughtsarethings.us. They all. And they we're all, also I'll on take you there. Many roads. We're also on uh, Tribe. That's uh, right. We're on Tribe.net, and uh, we're on MySpace. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're <laughs> all right, over so the place. Too, not, kind of all over the place. Not too hard to find. Not too yeah. hard to find. And, and I know you've got a new forum um, or a new relationship that you're beginning with the guys over there at Three Site. Uh, yeah, that the, uh, the the folks who are running Three Site, which is a wonderful site that uh, aggregates uh, communities. It's a community of communities. Um, has have provided us uh, streaming audio, and uh, so you can actually get to C3 Radio now with a uh, simple click. There's a link on our home, on our site that'll get you there. Yeah, right. Published some of the video there too, I think. Yeah, yeah it's real cool, and, and um, they they've been real friendly to me as well over there, and so um, it it was interesting that, that I mean yeah we didn't I didn't know that you guys knew them or vice versa. It was interesting how how yeah. the, how the web connects. Everyone, and it's a small world after all. So, yeah. and that last cut that you heard was from uh, our summer gig down at uh, Bird Island, uh, south of down at Niangua River, right. south right. of Lake. Right. That was supposed to be a great show. There were people yeah. that said that was one of your best. It was one of the best. It, it was a beautiful, beautiful setting next to a really lovely river. There was probably 100, 150 people out front, uh, but definitely our largest audience. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to mention our guest artist that's coming up for our next show. Please, I know you got a new guitarist or something. Uh, right? Guitarist Stuart Dummett is—he's um, also a well-known painter. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, is uh, going to join us, and uh, th- that should—that's going to lend some very interesting ambience to what we're doing. Uh, and uh, we've we've had a whole interesting array of guest artists in the past. Yeah, and the, and 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 the. Uh the, the lineup of different instruments that you guys incorporate is outrageous. It, it, it's always changing, and that's by design. I mean, the idea is to stimulate us and to uh, stimulate the sound so that we keep evolving in new ways. And the perfect location on the mighty Missouri feet away. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just away from you. Yeah. Yeah. I've got this image of my ancestors, the Sioux, with their encampments on the on the on the banks. Oh, of speaking the river, of which, you know. our, our flute player Cam uh, is going to uh, do a. Um, He's going to do a spoken word piece about um, Prince Modoc, right? That was uh, Maidan or something. Maidoc, the uh, the the Welsh prince who came oh, over and yeah, yes, who came over and and worked with the Mandan Indians and taught of Welsh. Yes, all this was pre pre Columbus. Absolutely, way pre Columbus. Way pre Columbus. And it's connected to the Hopi and the and the Anasazi and the Danan. There's a group that they call the Danan. And this tribe uh, moved up and down the Mississippi and the Missouri rivers mm-hmm. regularly, and there's a very good chance that they camped where we're going to be playing, right. and that's that's what we're going to do, honor them. Well, fantastic. I yeah. love it. Yeah. All right, on the web, everybody, C3, C-E-E-T-H-R-E-E dot U-S. US. 
Yeah. And then uh, also on MySpace and also on Tribe.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you can link there directly now from my uh, from MikeHagan.com. You'll find them in the in the archives in the music archives. You can always link there from my you, site. You can hear our music there. You can see videos of our work. Right, uh, right. You got a you got a video blog. That please come join well. us and drop us a note. Lots yeah. of music to download. Right. Yeah, and and uh, and great. Uh, people in the community that are doing great artistic work uh, outside of these projects as well. I appreciate the work that you guys do outside of these projects. We we have like a whole community of not just the performers but a whole, it is a collective of of artists, of uh, video artists, of of painters, of dancers. Right. uh, And that's all growing all the time. It's growing all the time. Well, it's a a wonderful community that, that, that I think all of us are helping to build here and I'm really proud to be a part of it and I'm glad that I ran into you guys and I'm glad yeah. that we get to play some music tonight so thanks Delighted. thanks for having me alright everybody thanks that's and uh, the show uh, one more time at Cooper's Landing on uh, Saturday night yep. Saturday night the 23rd 23rd that's my kid's birthday that's Alistair's birthday he'll, yeah, be, three. Three. he'll be three years old on All the right. equinox yeah uh-huh Right on. Okay, everybody, that's uh, C3. One more time, at Cooper's Landing Saturday night and on the web, C-E-E-T-H-R-E-E dot U-S. All right, it's Mike. We'll come back in just a few minutes with Kevin and Matthew Taylor, the authors of Land of No Horizon. And it'll be an interesting conversation we'll have for the next couple hours. So stick around. We'll have some music to mix in. And uh, we'll talk to you in just a few minutes. All right, it's Mike. You listen to KOPN 89.5 FM. It's Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few.
Alright, that's a little bit better for my quick, abbreviated version of space weather. I decided I'd try to sneak it in, because there are some cool things that are going on in the sky. So a perfect backdrop for a little quick space weather here. Uh, Alright, it's Mike. Radio Orbit. Alright, in a few minutes, Kevin and Matthew Taylor. Uh, I had a whole bunch of things to talk about, but I'll jump to this. Uh, an annular eclipse on the 22nd of September, just before the equinox. Of course, the equinox is on the 23rd. Here in Missouri, actually, on the 22nd, just around a little before midnight, maybe 10, 11 o'clock on the 23rd. Uh, but a... Uh, as I said, a solar eclipse. We won't see it here. It'll be mostly in South America, then across the Atlantic and down into Africa. But another one of these interesting phenomena in the skies above our heads. Lots of other things, as always. Asteroids and comets and meetings. You know, it's amazing how many meetings there are of, 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 of scientists and it's probably interest the guys that are on the line that we're going to talk to in a few minutes, as a matter of fact. But, I mean, just uh, just now I'm looking at, on September 18th through the 20th, a meeting in the United Kingdom, this is in London, recent developments in the study of gamma ray bursts. That's one that I made a note of for Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul LaViolette. Um, the 19th through the 21st, the Societal Impact of Spaceflight Conference. Uh, the 20th through the 22nd, the Vienna Workshop on the Future of Astro-Seismology. Uh, the Workshop on Next Generation Nucleon Decay and Neutrino Detectors. Come on. Uh, you know, and then, anyway, that was just a few. They're all over the place. And every week I could tell you a whole bunch of them. You know, I, I, I skip over most of them. And uh, in the meantime, there's all kinds of space observing star parties going on all across the country this time of year during the equinox uh, it's a special time of year for people uh, of many different faiths and stuff it's just an interesting time to be looking at the sky and uh, and to be aware of the world around you you know the solstices and the equinoxes are special not for uh, you know not for profane reasons but because there's something really happening during those times so anyway all kinds of star parties and uh, sky watching events going on over the next few days uh, and it's a cool time to look up as always alright okay uh, just about midnight a little bit after as a matter of fact and it is Mike you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM we're also streaming live on the web www.cosmicwavesradio.com and uh I had the opportunity to uh, to read this book that I'm going to tell you about in just a minute. It's called The Land of No Horizon. And it really sparked my curiosity because it brought up an idea that I had heard years and years ago but really had sort of discounted, but it sort of brought it back to my attention. And we're going to talk about it tonight. Kevin and Matthew Taylor, they've set out to show that the hollow earth theory has a credible scientific merit and it should not be ignored. And uh, they lay out in this book, and there's a lot of evidence that's, that, that's come out since the book was written. The, the, the book was published in 2001, if I'm correct. But uh, at any rate, 
There's significant evidence surfacing that, that shows that our current beliefs regarding the structure of the planet are wrong. And uh, we're going to talk about it right now and for the next couple hours with Kevin and Matthew Taylor, live, both of them from different places in Australia. Welcome to Radio Orbit. Thanks for being here tonight, you guys. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us to come on, on the radio. Um, and nice to talk to you, Mike. And um, I'm glad you enjoyed our book. It's an amazing book. And, uh, you know, I've learned over the years to not, uh, uh, not throw the baby out with the bathwater because every time I do, I end up getting burned. And so I, I look out. Uh, I look out now with an open eye, and and I'm, uh, I'm interested in all these different things. But anyway, it's wonderful stuff, and 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 we'll flesh it out tonight and let people make up their own minds about it. But we're certainly going to talk about it. And I thank you both for uh, for being here. What is it? It's uh, you're about 15 hours, I think, ahead of us. So uh, sometime in the yeah, afternoon. Yeah, it's three o'clock Tuesday afternoon here in Australia. So we're 15 hours ahead. Yes, that's right. And Kevin, what part of Australia are you in? I'm in Queensland, <coughs> uh, which is uh, the northern part of Australia. Right, and Matthew. And Matthew's in New South Wales. New South Wales. Yeah. All right. Mm. Okay. Well, um, I think the, the the appropriate way to get started is if you could please give us a little background on yourselves, both of you. How uh, did you get on this path? What got you interested in hollow earth theories to begin with? And uh, and and and. How did it lead to where you are today? Well, I suppose it started in my childhood because there were many things that just didn't seem to make sense. And this is Kevin. And I remember as a really young person thinking about hey. when they told us about this great flood of Noah. Hey, Kevin. Um, how all this water uh, came out, came onto the earth. And the amazing thing was um, what happened to the water after the flood. It couldn't just simply dry up. And there were various things like that that... Uh, made me question uh, the foundation beliefs that we all had. And uh, so we started, I started doing a little bit of research and we started to find other discrepancies as well. And um, Matthew and I have actually been working on this for, for many years and have come up with a lot of evidence, a lot of credible evidence that disputes current beliefs which have been around for several hundred years. And you and Matthew... Matthew also say as well, um, it started off as as being just a fun thing that we would talk about because we were both very interested in these sort of topics. And then as we started to, to talk more about it and to learn more different things, we actually started to become a little bit more serious about it because it actually started to really look like a possibility. And so it came to a point when we really thought, well, we have to really write a book about this because we've really got something here. And so once we made that decision and we actually started to do a bit more research, we really did realize what we'd found and and that's really the start of this whole project and that was many, many years ago and we're still doing um, more research now and, and making more discoveries. Even just recently, we've made quite a few new things so it's still progressing today. All right, and for, and for the listeners, you are a father and son. Kevin, you're Matthew's father, is that correct? That's yeah, correct. We're a father and son team, yes. Um, and the interesting thing here is... Uh, we overlap in areas, and the areas that aren't my great strengths are Matthew's great strengths, and vice versa. And so we, we have a, a situation where we can discuss and, and do research together, and, um, and this has added both of us together to, to come up with the end result. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, we, we were aware where my, my strengths are and what my weaknesses are. They tend to correlate with Dad's, and we tend to keep pulling us back 
to the straight and narrow, which is where we both want to be. I think um, a lot of people sometimes they might come up with a new theory or an idea and they'll go off and plow ahead and, and then research it themselves and, and sometimes you'll find that they can go off on a bit of a tangent and sort of lose the track a little bit. And, and during our research, we've, we've found a lot of great scientists and, and original thinkers who have come struck an idea and they've perhaps really got something and then they've maybe gone a bit far in one direction or not. And, and um, we've actually found a lot of scientists that all have very interesting ideas and they all sort of work in this common idea. I guess it's a, like a combination of a lot of different new theories that are coming out now and a bit of our own stuff as well, putting it all together, and that's, you know, sort of, that and I working together has helped that work a lot better. Matthew, what is, what is your specialty? What do you, uh, what do you study? Um, well, um, I, it's a bit hard to define, I guess. Um, I really like the, the details, so whether that's figuring out, you know, the details of gravity or geology and that sort of thing, um, and the maths and that sort of thing. I, I think I like that. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I like to really get right down into that detail and, and figure things out as closely as possible. Um, whereas um, I guess Dad has a bit more of the human element to it as well, and a bit of the colour. We're, we're both artists as well, but um, Dad tends to put a bit more of the creative colour into the, the actual book and the, and the writing and, and so on as well. And are you trained in the sciences of some sort? Um, we don't have any formal qualifications, but um, uh, obviously when you're working on something which is quite radically different to what is currently accepted as being correct. You can't really go to university to learn about it. It's something that you have to, have to plow ahead in your own direction. They're not teaching Hollow Earth Theory in university. <laughs> it's not a subject that I've seen anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's see. Uh, I, think, I think the first, you know, it was interesting to me when I began reading the book that I wasn't expecting to read about evolution at uh, at the beginning of it with regard to you know I was thinking the formation mm-hmm. of the planet and the idea that the planet may not be composed the way we think it is and you know it might not be solid and this and that and I wasn't expecting uh, a, a discussion about evolution maybe you could talk a little bit about w- why that's significant and uh, and why you began the book that way mm-hmm. uh, probably the reason why uh, when we started this book um, hollow um, Earth theory was uh, considered um, pretty crazy. Uh, most people uh, felt it was just paranormal rubbish. And so what we felt we would do first is, is we would present the evidence um, to say that there was something wrong with our understanding. Um, when we look at the evidence, um, it, things start to fall into place, and that's why we did it that way around. I guess if we were writing today... Um, we would certainly turn that around because the, the thoughts on the hollow earth have certainly changed in the last half dozen years. But when we first started this, it was uh, almost a, a taboo subject. I think the other thing we should say as well, um, the, the hollow earth theory is a pure, purely physical theory of how the earth is formed and, and why the structure we believe it is. And looking at the evidence suggests that that is the case. But that is... is in itself to a lot of people can be quite a boring topic, particularly heavy geology and gravity. And I guess where we're coming from with, with this book is we've really tried to interweave with that, wh- how that affects humanity and, of course, evolution and, and where we're from and, and how the changing um, formation of the Earth and the changing path that the Earth has been through 
has affected life on Earth. And so I think that is our attempt to really try and connect it more with us as humans and what it means to us in a in more of a you know, positive way. And you talk about the missing link. Yes. And the, um, reason, and, link and, is, and the reason we can't find it. Yes. Well, yes. well uh, yeah, go on, Dad. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. Um, yes, um, with with the missing link, um, there are connections, but but the problem is they're inconclusive connections, and we are we are saying that obviously we have connections with the primates on this planet, but when you look at all the problems that are associated with it, with those theories, there are definitely wide gaps, and our, our structure, um, our skin. Um, uh, lots of things about humanity don't match with other life around us. It's almost like if we look at the tree of evolution um, and the branches, the, the tips of the branches where the leaves are are all the species on the earth, you can trace it right back, right all the species right back through the trunk, uh, through the branches down to the trunk. With humanity, there seems to be um, something unusual about the, the way we connect back. Yeah. There seems to be missing pieces. And if you think of uh, birds, for argument's sake, there are hundreds of thousands of different species of birds, um, yet there's only one real species of humanity uh, well ahead in intelligence of anything else. And that, that sounds a bit vague, just putting it like that, but in, in the book itself, we go through all the different aspects of humanity and we offer a, a suggestion of an environment that would actually produce these aspects. Yeah, one of the things um, with the missing link, the missing link tends to be, it's not really a term that's used so much anymore, but when it was originally coined, it was it was to represent the gap in the fossil evidence that links uh, humankind to the primates. But what we um, tried to show in the first part of our book is that the missing link is more than just that. It's not only that there's there seems to be a gap between us and the rest of life, but but the makeup of us, um, our, our bodies and so on, actually is not as well suited to the environment as what the other life is. And whether that's the fact that you know, we, we, um, the cold, it goes right through our skins. Has, we have thin fat layers and we don't have pigment in our skin or, or we, we, um, our skin burns from the ultraviolet light and we can't see at night and, and all these things. And, and we have very fine structure in our bones compared to other life of similar sizes. And all these things tend to suggest that while we, we are adapted somewhat to, to life here on Earth, there is seems to be some exotic characteristics that don't tend to match or seem a little foreign. And we, we started off the book introducing that idea and then as we go through the book we, we offer a suggestion later on and it involves the hollow earth theory. Okay. Uh, you know, for me, I've always thought the one thing that was so amazing to me was not a, was not a physiological thing but was behavior, was language. Mm. I, you know, I always thought, gosh, if you're looking for the fingerprint of something strange, you know, it's 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 yeah, human, well, human think, speech. Yeah, and I think speech um, is obviously because we have such a huge level of intelligence, and and that really that is the one biggest thing that sets us apart from all of the rest of life, and that is our level of intelligence. And um, and of course we've mentioned that as well. And where does this intelligence come from? And um, another point too, Mike, in, in this. In, yeah. Oh, sorry. I can only hear Matthew. That's why I tend to talk over there. Sorry, Matthew. <laughs> another another, uh, another point is if we have reached this highest level uh, of the species of the planet, 
um, but at the same time we seem to be out of tune with the environment. There is nowhere we could live in our natural state on the earth and survive um, and it seems strange that the most advanced species on the planet is not actually adapted to the environment. It's as if uh, an inter in interdu inter interruption into the evolutionary process took place and man is the result of that. So we are connected to other life, um, but there seems to be this something that's come in. We are highly advanced, but there's this uh, difference between us and other species around us. It may seem insignificant when you look at one thing, but when you look at everything collectively, uh, there certainly is a case to, to make a question of. The other thing we wanted to try and do as well at the start of the book is to really um, open our eyes to the way things really are and really look at them properly as if we're looking at it for the first time. And when you really think about what we do every day, living in a house, putting on clothes and going to work, and you know, it, it's such a, a crazy life that we live in, in a virtual environment. And it is so alien compared to the rest of life. And... We wanted to really, we don't question it because we do it every day, it feels normal, but, but when you really look at it and really analyse it, it is very strange. And we believe that one of the causes of that, obviously our um, higher level of intelligence, but also we, we need to control our environment and clothe ourselves and warm and keep ourselves warm in order to protect ourselves. Because in our natural state, if we didn't have intelligence and we were naked, it wouldn't be any place on the earth which we could survive all year round would be too cold or too hot hmm. and um, and the predators around would be able to just attack and eat us because we can't run um, very fast and we don't have any attacking claws or sharp weapons or anything naturally so we just wanted to introduce this idea so that later on people as they're reading the book would be thinking about that and and you know and we, and we can offer some, some suggestions for that later on all right um I want to ask about some other mysteries like the Great Flood and the Ice Age, but but I also, before I do that, I'd like to ask a little bit about the history of the Hollow Earth Theory. There are a number of different ones, and maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the historical ideas about the Hollow Earth. Yeah, um, I guess the Hollow Earth Theory has been around for quite a while. Um, uh, I guess um, the, the first uh, Hollow Earth idea was from Edmund Haley, um, who, of course, uh, discovered the Halley's Comet. Um, and his idea was that the Earth was actually composed of several hollow spheres, one inside the other. And the reason why he proposed that was because in order to explain the complex um, nature of the magnetic field that's emanating from within the Earth, he, um, the only way he could explain it was that we had several separate shells that have its own magnetism and they're all rotating at different speeds to create the resultant effect. Um, and obviously this is a quite a crazy idea but sometimes it's good to just think of a crazy idea in order to try and solve a problem. Right. You never know where you'll go. But, but that was where it sort of initially started from. And there's been various other people who have come up with variations on these ideas. But the, the most popular hollow earth theory uh, that I know of it in, until our theory has come along is the idea that the Earth is hollow and there are holes in the poles. Mm. Now, we don't believe that there are holes in the poles and there certainly doesn't, doesn't seem to be any evidence to suggest that there is. Um, and a lot of people, in trying to prove that the Earth is hollow, try to actually find these polar holes to try and prove it. And I think the premise why the, the, there are polar holes has to do with the fact that the Earth is rotating and they believe that the centrifugal force would open up the hole in the poles. Right, it's like a torus. This, this is actually a fallacy because 
the um, centrifugal force is the strongest at the equator, not actually at the poles. So if there's any force that's going to open up into the, in a hole into the uh, centre of the Earth, it could be around the equator, not at the, at the poles. You know, you guys, so, um, hey, Matthew, let me ask you a question. There, there was... Um you know, and it bounces around the net still right now, but there's, I'm, I'm not sure if it's anecdotal. Some people claim that it's for real, but I think that, I think the origins are sort of dubious. But there was a report from Admiral Byrd, uh, from, yeah. uh, early, what, in the 1900s maybe, uh, that, that, that his expedition somehow, uh, entered, uh, uh, uh an yes, opening at the, at the North Pole. Blew an airplane right. right through the pole hole, yes. Right. Um, so this, it cannot be verified. That's the difficulty with it. Um, there's a lot of things like this, and we we tend to uh, treat them as really paranormal mm-hmm. because how do you verify something like that? What, what Matthew and I have done is we've relied on scientific evidence. Like if the Earth is hollow, there will be scientific evidence to say so, right. and that's where we based. There's no point in, re- in people's reports that can't be verified because, I mean, you don't know that person... Um, may have decided to do that just to sell a book or whatever. Right. All these different things that have happened. So yeah. we believe that if the if the Earth is solid and centrally compressed, as is the current belief, then the evidence would say that. If the Earth were hollow and expanding, as we say, then there'd be scientific evidence uh, to confirm that. And that's what we have found. We found no evidence to support the compressed, uh, centrally compressed solid theory. Only the wish for it to be so because it's been around for 300 years, uh, but all the evidence points to um, our ideas being wrong because all the theories that have been put forward uh, have been terribly flawed. And, uh, One of the main um, things that people um, object to a, an expanding Earth or a hollow Earth is uh, the fact that um, Newtonian gravity or Einstein's idea of uh, gravity forces the the mass of, of an Earth inwards and, and compresses onto the centre. And um, what we've been um, doing a lot of research on lately is, is a few different ideas of the theories of gravity. And um, we've um, looked at how the formation of a planet under these new ideas of gravity actually shows that this is not necessarily the case. And that's what we try to, to show in our book as well. Yeah, you devote uh, a pretty good section there, uh, actually, to gravity. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see. Um, well, before we get there, let me ask you a little bit more about some of the big question marks uh, uh, that, 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 that might be solved. You mentioned looking at things in a different light and from a different perspective, and sometimes that's a way to get uh, a better answer, perhaps. Um, the Great Flood, you mentioned that early on, Kevin. Yes, well, um, the problem with the Great Flood for me, um, obviously it was a biblical report, but it's actually reporting in a lot of cultures all over the world yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, mythology all over the world reports it. Yeah, but the thing about it, and of course um, there's a great, been a Great Flood on Mars too. The problem about the Flood is that, okay, we, perhaps we can accept a Flood, but if a Flood covered the Earth, how, where did the Flood waters subside to for us to have our land back as dry land? Uh, and th- this this is a bit of a problem. Probably going around, around in, a, in a funny sort of way and going through all this, but uh, this has always been a problem as to how uh, the flood waters would subside. Um, in in the hollow Earth situation, it provides reasons for a great flood on Earth. It also provides reasons for the floods on Mars, which we know have taken place, mm-hmm. even though liquid water cannot exist in the atmosphere of Mars, which is one hundredth that of Earth. It just simply boils away. 
But in the hollow Earth uh, situation, uh, floodwaters can exist uh, inside a planet because of the fact that uh, when you get outgassing on the surface of a planet, such as, say, Mars, it's probably easy to understand with Mars and the Earth, the outgassing um, gives up Mars its atmosphere. Uh, if atmosphere had sufficient gravity, it would end up with an atmosphere similar to Earth's. But because it has low gravity, um, then what happens is the solar wind removes the excess atmosphere, so it only is able to hold one hundredth that of Earth. And of course, the Moon is half half size again, and it holds no atmosphere. But if you've got an inner facing surface, um, which is also outgassing, uh, an inner atmosphere is able to pressurize uh, to the point where liquid water can exist. In actual fact, you end up with a situation with high pressure inside and deep oceans inside, which are trying to come to balance. And so uh, uh, an asteroid hitting Mars, a celestial impact, may crack the shell of the planet and then all these floodwaters are able to rush out. Um, the thing about the Earth is um, that and we need to go through the evidence as to why we believe that matter forms to a hollow planet. Right. Um, so, 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 Kevin, the, the implication is that Mars is a hollow planet and that this is a sort of a common phenomenon, perhaps, right? Yes, it certainly yes. is. It's the way gravity works. Mm. Uh, the, the big problem we have with our current theory of, of the centrally compressed planet is um, it, it seems as though it's impossible for compression to reach the center of the planet. That is the difficulty with it, because as a planet grows in size, matter further down is attracted not only downwards, but to other matter that's laid above it. Uh, and this matter then starts to lose weight. Once matter loses weight, it can't add compression to matter beneath it. The only way compression can then reach the center is if it arrives from the surface. But once the planet reaches a certain size, the, the, the friction uh, encountered by c compression at the surface cannot reach you know, 6,000 kilometers to the center of our Earth. Another way to look uh, at this, this is, well, that's, that's um, it sort of very briefly. Um, yeah. without going in, I mean, we've gone through a whole chapter in this. Right, I mean, and, and you go into the mathematics of it and everything. Yeah, yeah well, um, Matthew's, Matthew's done a lot of research on pushing gravity. Matthew, can I hand you over to, to you on that? Yeah, um, well, I guess um, I probably don't have to go into the way gravity sort of works and the pushing your gravity theory, but I think the idea of compression is important. Um, we know that uh, the more mass the planet has, the more gravity it has. So if you're standing on the Earth, you weigh however much you weigh. If you're standing on the Moon, you weigh uh, one-sixty amount you weigh because mm -hmm. the Moon's so much smaller. Right. So when a planet is tiny, it has almost no weight. It's only a very, a very small fraction. Now, as a planet forms and material dust and rock are coming in to form on, form on the planet, when a planet is small, they only come in with a, a really small amount of weight. So they're just loosely packing around to cause a planet. As the planet gets larger with more mass, the surface level gravity is actually increasing. So the same types of rock and dust and so on that's coming in to form on the planet actually comes in with more weight, and so you end up with a higher density as the planet gets bigger. So the idea of a planet, as it's growing, becoming more and more dense on its outer edges, that, that's the, really the central change that we need to look at. And a very good analogy is... is you know, if we imagine a steamroller, which is uh, rolling over a road or over a bed of gravel to compress it to make the road nice and strong and, and solid, um, if you ever watch the people doing this, you, they never put all the gravel there and just steamroll over the top. They actually do it all in layers. And the reason is that when a steamroller is trying to compress um, gravel, 
it only compresses down, only a short way down into the into the gravel. And once once um, it goes down that far, the, the uh, friction in the gravel adds up to equal the weight of the steamroller. Mm-hmm. So the only way you can compress gravel further down is to increase the rate weight of the steamroller. But it is impossible to to in, in, uh, having compression occurring on the surface and for it to reach down to the centre of the earth. If we can't, it can only compress a metre into the ground with a steamroller. Imagine going all the way to 6,000 kilometres to the centre of the earth. It's really um, quite a crazy idea. And, and this is one of the uh, fundamental shifts that we've, um, we've come across. And that's a part of the idea of how an earth eventually becomes hollow. And the idea that it's compressed on the outer edges is the starting point to that. Hmm. All right. Um and the idea I suppose, I suppose too, Mike, just as, a, as an extension of that, um, matter on, its, on the surface weighs the most as it becomes buried. So if you were halfway to the centre of the Earth, you'd weigh half your weight basically on a solid centre of compressed model. As, as matter um, becomes uh, lighter, it then loses compressional um, weight. The more and more matter that comes on top, eventually that matter will become weightless and as it continues, then the attraction up will be greater than the attraction down. Mm. And, and this, this is the point that actually starts the opening out of the inside of the planet. Um, yeah, in, so in other words, as um, material that's joining the planet, as that, that material then gets buried by material above it, it actually loses weight a little bit. So if you imagine you're taking a steamroller again and you're rolling out some gravel, and then you actually make the steamroller lighter and you try and go over it again, you actually, there's no way you can add more compression to that gravel anymore. Right, right. Um, and that's so the only way you can get compression in the centre of the Earth is from additional compression in the centre of the Earth is at, at the surface and it's just too far away. And that, but that's why we feel that this is worth, worthy of, of, mm. of investigation because this makes a huge difference. Yeah. And all the evidence we've gone through has supported this all the way through. We've never really found anything that has contradicted it. Well, you know, um, we're, we're going to have to take a break here in just a minute, but the one thing that's always uh, been a question to me with regard to gravity is that it's never been explained. I mean, it's, it's, right. it's been described, uh, but it hasn't been explained, the source of it or anything like that. I mean, it's... Well, you know. There are actually a couple of theories, and we won't have time about perhaps after the break, but uh, there are some theories of how gravity actually works um, as opposed to describing what gravity will do. All right. Well, I tell you what, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about what you guys think about that because then we can uh, sort of leap into uh, the idea of the expanding Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we'll throw a real bombshell that I'm not even going to tell people about uh, until we get uh, past the break here. So, <laughs> all right, everybody, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We're on the line with Kevin and Matthew Taylor. They are the authors of a book called The Land of No Horizon. You can also find them on the web at uh, l I'm sorry t l o n h dot com. That's basically the initials of the book, The Land of No Horizon. Uh, at any rate. Um, T-L-O-N-H dot com and you can link there directly from my site from here on out, okay? So we've got Kevin and Matthew on the line with us. We'll come back with them in just a few minutes and if you're listening and you want to hop on the web and see some of the imagery that we'll be uh, talking about tonight, you can you can do that uh, just jump on over to my site at MikeHagan.com and click over to their site and there's all kinds of uh, interesting information that 
will sort of uh, uh, go along with the program that we're uh, that we're in the middle of here. Okay. All right. So it's about 12:30. We're now the 19th of September, 2006, and we'll be back in just a minute. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, and this is my friends C3. Thank you. 
All right, C3 coming to you. Independent music from mid-Missouri on Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It's Mike, and you're listening to it live. It's Tuesday morning now, about 12.37 in the AM, and I've got Kevin and Matthew Taylor on the line with me from their homes in Australia, and we're speaking about their book, The Land of No Horizon, and theories of a hollow earth. Hi, guys. Thanks for sticking around. All right. Yep. No worries. All right. So uh, let's um, talk a little bit more about where we were going before the break. This idea that the earth is uh, compressed on the outside, basically has a hard shell, uh, but is, uh, is somehow hollow on the inside. Now, the question is, uh, is it? Are, are there different compartments on the inside? In other words, is it hollow and then solid again, and then hollow, or is it just a big hollow cavity? And 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 the big one is, where do we live? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess um, we really need to talk about um, how the Earth has formed and the processes that the Earth goes. Through. Let's do that. Let's talk a little bit yeah. more about how you guys think that happened. Um, I think that there's definitely three distinct. Uh, phases that a planet will go through or can go through. Um, the first stage is when a planet is initially forming and you have material coming together to form a planet. Um, and as I described just before, um, when the material comes together, when a planet is small, it has less gravity, so there's less compression of this material as it comes together when it's small. And as a planet gets larger, it has more mass, and so there's more gravity on the surface and so the material coming in compacts to a greater density. And this can, continues until, as the planet completely forms, it becomes um, progressively more dense to the outer edges, and the, the centre will remain loosely packed. And this is primarily because the compression that's happening at the surface can't actually reach down to the centre. It can reach a short way down, but once it goes beyond a certain level, it can't go any further. So does the, planet, the, does the planet still form from a core, for example, uh, outward? Except, I mean, I know we have a lot of different theories about what the core of our planet is. Uh, yes. d- does it begin, in your opinion, with a core and then building outward? Well, it has to um, initially um, start with something, and there has, has to be something to start. So whether it be some kind of material or something collecting together, it could be something quite small, but it just builds from that. That's not necessarily any any uh, different in makeup to what the rest of the planet is made from. Uh, obviously, our current accepted theories of how the Earth is formed uh, say that we have an iron, an iron core mm-hmm. surrounded by a, um, a liquid iron core. Um, but of course, this is what we're we're saying isn't necessarily correct, and we need to relook at, at some of this evidence. What would um, what would planets like Jupiter and Saturn, these the, and, and even Neptune and and Uranus, yes. these so-called gas giants, that, that, how, how do they make sense? Um, well, as you travel out throughout the solar system, um, you, you'll notice that the, the makeup of the planets generally changes. The closer you are to the sun, the, the heavier the elements are making up the, the, the planets, and they're more rocky. Um, as you go out, um, you tend, the planets can become less dense um, and more gaseous. And obviously, Earth is, is, is um, sufficient size and sufficiently rocky, but we also have liquid water 
and an atmosphere. If you travel out, you get to Mars. Mars is smaller and it's and it's, it's uh, not as dense. And then you start getting into the asteroid belt and then into the gas planets. Now, gas, um, if, uh, it obviously is a lot less dense than, than rocky material, but the, um, the ratio of how gravity works is the same. What generally happens, though, is a, a gas planet, in order for it to form, it forms in a similar way, but it has to form at a, uh, on a larger scale, but in the same way. So, but obviously, as well, gas is being less dense. It needs to have some kind of seed to start the process from, from, from uh, off-planet formation. So I would say that, that Jupiter and, and um, Saturn and, and Neptune and Uranus would all have started from a rocky seed and that collected an atmosphere and then gradually that atmosphere could build up to a point which is almost a solid, a solid gas planet. Hmm. But um, going, getting back to the terrestrial planets or the rocky planets, the Earth, um, I, I, we believe it has had three distinct uh, phases throughout its life. The first stage, which is forming externally dense. The second stage, which is this externally dense structure then becoming hollow as the inside of the planet settles outwards towards the outside. And, and during this stage, it just takes quite a long time. Um, and the planet doesn't change in, in diameter during this period any, any, um, great, uh, any great amount. And then the third um, phase is then uh, the shell of the planet once it's hollow, it starts to then thin and we find that the planet will actually expand. And there's a whole wealth of um, evidence to suggest this has taken place and there's um, quite a number of, of scientists that um, have actually written many books on expanding Earth theory and, and this is primarily to explain the drifting continents right, on the Earth. Right, right. I mean, I remember as a kid looking at the maps and I didn't need to be a scientist. I could tell this was a puzzle. That's right. One of the very interesting things about the, the continents, um, I think probably everyone has seen pictures of the continents moving around the, the globe. Um, but when we look at the ages of the, of the crust on the Earth, we find some remarkable differences. The, the continents are all about uh, 4,000 uh, million years old, 4 billion years old. And all of the ocean floors are no older than only 200 million years old. So there's a huge difference there in the, in the, the age. You guys, um, uh, Matthew and Kevin both, how, how comfortable are you guys with dating techniques and methods and all this stuff? Uh, yes, that is a bit of a problem because uh, carbon dating is known to be um, flawed. But unfortunately, it's the only um, system we've got of dating things. And I suppose if the continents aren't up to 4,000 million years old and the ocean floors aren't up to 200 million years old, there is still a massive age difference between the two. Interestingly, too, um, and Matthew's probably going to get, get to this, when you look at all the continents that um, were supposedly all joined together into one uh, supercontinent, Pangaea, yeah, Pangea. um, the amazing thing is that where the supercontinent broke apart is what produced the continental shelves. But there must have been edge pieces on Pangaea that wouldn't have had continental shelves, but that's not the case. The continental shelves surround all continents. Hmm. And uh, in actual fact... Um, uh, a lot of the scientists that have gone on to these, um, like Warren, S. Warren Carey, who've uh, written several books on this, have said that the Earth has expanded and it used to be one-third its size. And you can join up all the continents over the, all over the world through the magnetism in the rocks, the rock structure, uh, soil types, um, 
uh, and it actually forms our world one-third its size because two-thirds of our Earth is ocean. And uh, basically, of course, the oceans come over the continental shelves a little bit too, but pretty well 300 million square kilometers of our Earth's surface has formed in the last um, 200 million years or just a fraction of its life. Yes. Uh, and th this is a thing that uh, plate tectonics has tried to mm -hmm. come up with lots of theories mm -hmm. on drifting continents. Right. But um, they're all terribly flawed, but it's the best that they can sort of come up with to keep the Earth a constant diameter. Right. Is, is there evidence that it's still expanding? It certainly yes. is. Um, there are yes. big expansion ridges that, that are underneath the ocean um, in all of our oceans. For example, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which you may have heard of, which goes right down through the, through the Atlantic. Sure. And um, these are long chains of volcanoes where basically the, uh, the ocean floor is moving apart and then new molten material is coming up, creating new ocean floor in the middle. And when we uh, study the age of the ocean floors, we find that the ocean floors are younger near these centre ridges and then as you progressively move away from the ridges and move towards the continents on either side, uh, the age of the ocean floor gets older until you reach the oldest age of ocean floor, which is um, at the continents. Hmm. Uh, and so a lot of, a lot of uh, scientists in the past puzzled by this have actually made progressively and progressively smaller Earth um, by eliminating um, chunks of the Earth at certain ages and gradually chipping away at it age by age until they've got a, a, um, a world that's only a third the size. That's quite remarkable. There's nothing too, Mike, that's really interesting that we, we came across a lot of things that we weren't expecting to find. Uh, when you reconstruct continents together at continental shelves, they have what they call pivoting gaps. In other words, if you bring them together at one end, uh, it opens up at the other end. They sort of roll along each other. Hmm. And, but as soon as you reduce the diameter, those edges all go together perfectly. Huh, huh. Uh, but on the, constant, on the current diameter of the Earth, um, you can't get the edges to go together all over. There, uh -huh. There's definitely um, a, a pivot that occurs there, I which is a, an interesting thing. I there certainly is a lot of distortion as well. Um, the, the Pacific Ocean is obviously the, the largest ocean uh, on the planet, and that is where the first split uh, occurred and where the expansion has begun. And, as, and because this is where the, the Earth has been expanding for the longest, this is why we have most of the mountain ranges following around the Pacific Rim because this is where the, continent, the continents themselves have distorted as the Earth has been expanding out in one, in one place. And, and that's why we don't see the connection across the Pacific as easily as what we do in the, in the, in the Pacific, sorry, in the, in the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean, etc. Another point too, Mike, is that there's been a bit of a mystery how mountains have been formed, like Himalayas, for fragment's sake, in the centre of continents. Um, what actually happens is, as the planet expands, its curvature reduces, which produces horizontal compression on the outer surface. And in turn, as the continents flatten to take up a new curvature of the, lar large, the larger diameter of Earth, um, it, they crumple to form the mountain ranges yeah, we have today. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting concept, yeah. It also it correlates... Um, perfectly because we find that generally the larger the continent is, the larger the mountains are because there's more compression um, taking place and, that, and more has to give. Another interesting point is as well, we, we, we quite often find mountain ranges on the edges of continents and this is because when the continents originally broke apart, they're weak spots in the crust. That's why they're cracked there and not somewhere else where the crust is stronger. 
So when when this compression is building up, it's got to give somewhere again. It's going to give at the weakest points, which happen to be around the edges in most cases, and that's why we have um, mountain ranges in those places around the edges of continents, and particularly around the, the edge of the Pacific where it broke first. You guys, there's, a, there's another mystery. There's another mystery too, Mike. Is the, is the is the when you check the magnetism in the rocks, uh, we see that um, continents have drifted south uh, from from the North Pole, but we also find they've drifted north from the South Pole at the same time. And the only way this can occur is in an expanding planet, because when a planet expands, as continents drift away from the poles, they drift away from both poles at the same time. This is why, and we've got had more expansion in the southern hemisphere. That's why we have so much ocean uh, in the southern hemisphere. Mm, that's right. Hey, but what about the so-called subduction zones? In other words, the answer has been, well, there's obviously new Earth being formed at these, like on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, like you point out. But then the the, the answer has been, well, it's also being sort of consumed sure. in other areas. Yes, well, basically... One of the problems the, here... The subduction is, zones is part is, of the, this is the a guess. plate tectonic theory. And, and the plate tectonics theory is, is the currently accepted um, theory of, of continental migration around the Earth. And that whole theory rests upon the premise that the Earth has not changed its diameter. So the only way they can explain continents moving around the globe... Um, with with um, new ocean being forming in some places, pushing them away, is for the ocean floor to then be consumed somewhere in other places. That's the only way they can uh, explain it. And that is the best theory that there is at, at present with maintaining a constant diameter of, of the Earth. Now, that's where, where the, the scientists that have looked at the expanding Earth are different. They've thought, well, look, the evidence is overwhelming that the Earth is expanding. We can't understand why it's expanding just yet, but let's not think about that now. Let's really analyse this and figure it out, and that's what a lot of scientists have done. Um, and there's, there's been several people making attempts to explain why the Earth could be expanding, um, and there's a couple of different methods, but I think uh, for ours is the only method that I know of that um, has, uh, employs the hollow Earth theory in order for the Earth to expand without having to increase in mass. Okay. And that's primarily what our book is about. Another thing too, Mike, is, is the fact that the subduction zones are not positioned in line with spreading sites. Also, um, there's a few problems with them. There are insufficient subduction zones for the amount of spreading. And when they check the subduction zones, there is no ocean sediment scraped off as the, as the plate supposedly goes beneath the other plate. And so there are a lot of flaws with the system at this stage, and it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. A piece either fits or it doesn't, mm. and if it doesn't fit, it doesn't go there. And, well, and also, just well. recently, when they've been doing a deep core drill, they expected to find a subduction plate beneath, and it wasn't there. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just not sure where that was, but I just read that recently. As well, um, is if, if there's, the amount of spreading is to be counteracted by the same amount of subduction, then you'd, you'd have to see some correlation in the amount of both happening, uh, an equal amount. What we find, if you add up all the lengths of the expanding uh, zones, um, there's actually less than that, um, uh, less in the length of the, um, of the trenches. But the interesting thing about the trenches is, as one uh, continental, um, pl one plate goes underneath uh, another, you're only eliminating one edge of that plate. But where the expanding zones are, you're actually creating... Um, new seafloor on both edges. 
So you've actually got a huge amount less than you would need if, if, if the, um, the trenches were doing what they're mm, meant to be doing. I see, I see. All right. All right. Um, let's see, one more question. The Ice Age, this is coming up in the chat room as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, with the Ice Age, um, we're not necessarily disputing uh, uh, certain types of Ice Ages. But one of the problems uh, with it is, first of all, when you look at... Um, the, the evidence of glaciers, we find a lot of evidence in Canada, North America, and Europe, but in Siberia and China, the same distance from the North Pole, there is, there is no evidence of any glacial action there. That's one problem that, that occurs. And when you reassemble the continents on an expanding Earth, America, Canada, and uh, Europe go up onto the Pole, mm-hmm. and that's up towards the North Pole. That's why we believe that there was glaciers there and not in northern, northern China. Another problem is there's been a, an assumption made that the rise in sea level um, was caused by melting ice. The problem is to drop um, the whole of the sea surface 300 million square kilometres by 100 feet. Um, there's a problem with that. First of all, um, where can you fit all the ice on the continents? Secondly, to evaporate requires heat. Now we're talking about ice ages, and we're talking about a period of time when the Earth was supposedly plunged into darkness, either dust from volcanoes or it went into a funny orbit or something. If that happened, and if it were a period of time when where a dust cloud went in front of the sun or something like that, we're not disputing that, then the Earth would freeze, but you wouldn't get glaciers to evaporate that much water off the ocean because there wouldn't be enough heat. So the, the fact that the ocean rose due to a mi- melting ice age, there is absolutely no evidence to support that. But unfortunately what happens in a lot of cases is ideas take hold and then they're treated as though they're fact. And even when new evidence comes along, instead of people going back and starting and saying, what is affected by this new evidence, it seems to be stuck on top of what we already accept to be fact. But the ice yeah, ages definitely has a serious problem and the, the, um, when it comes to uh, the striations across flat country and erratic boulders that are attributed to the ice age, in a lot of cases the erratic boulders are on higher ground than their source and the striations often on huge areas of flat continent which as proven in Antarctica where the continent is flat covered with ice, ice only moves downhill. So all these things that we attribute to an ice age can be attributed to other things. However, we're not saying that the Earth may not have gone through cold periods in the past, but we don't accept that this much of the Earth's ocean was turned to glaciers uh, on the continents. Okay. All right, so basically, at this point, we've sort of determined that, that there's... There's, pretty, there's a serious need to examine all of this evidence. That uh, there, there, there are reasons to believe. It's, it's, it's assumptions, as always. We have sort of these standard assumptions that we just sort of take for granted because they've been passed down or whatever, but they're not necessarily. Uh, they're not necessarily fact. Fact. Mm-hmm. This is the thing. The whole significance of all this has huge significance to humanity because. Um, we um, are suggesting that the, the envi- there's an environment possibility inside our Earth. And why wouldn't there be? Because the same elements that created oceans and atmosphere on the outside would cre- create oceans and atmosphere on the inside. But the interesting thing in the inside of the Earth, 
is if you have a surface on the outside of the Earth, radi radioactive decay uh, radiates into outer space and, and just escapes harmlessly. But on the inner surface, that radioactive decay would radiate towards the center of the planet. And we know we have a magnetic field in the center of the planet. This is sort of some of Matthew's heavy work here. But we know there's a reaction happening in the center of our planet. And therefore, um, we, we quite possibly have an environment inside our Earth that could support life. And there is more evidence to say that than there is to say there isn't. And the evidence to support the solid and compressed Earth is so hopelessly flawed that we really need to sit down and at least have a look at it. Um, I think the magnetic field is a very interesting topic and it might be interesting to just talk about that for a moment. Um, one of the things, or well, there's several things about the magnetic field that really don't tend to make sense. Um, we know we, our current idea about the dynamo theory suggests that it's being generated somehow by the Earth spinning on its axis and uh, perhaps the core spinning at a different rate and... Um, and because the core is, is, is metallic, then mm -hmm. it's generating electricity like a dynamo. Right, right. Um, there's a number of different things that um, sort of make us feel like this doesn't really seem to work. Um, for starters, in the centre of a planet, no matter what planet you pick, it's, it's, um, the gravity reduces as you get to the centre. So if, if there, there may not be thermal currents that could, could generate such a, a, um, a dynamo. Or if there is a, a core that's turning and it's um, generating electricity, that's obviously, uh, it would have to be friction involved and that would have to stop eventually. So what's continuing this, um, this rotation in the centre relative to the rest of the planet? We would expect after 4 billion years that it would have stopped long ago with the build-up of friction. When we study seismology, we don't get any vibrations at all from the centre of the planet. In fact, we don't pick up any vibrations whatsoever below 670 kilometres mm. below the surface. And um, there are other aspects as well. The, the north and, and south magnetic poles do not line up with the, um, the axis of rotation. They're out by quite a bit, and, and some of the other planets in the solar system are out by quite um, uh, amazing degrees, like 60 degrees, for example, I think uh, Uranus is out by. And um, there we also have the, the magnetic field reversals that we, we um, experience every um, few thousands of years. Um, and so trying to explain all this with the dynamo theory, it doesn't seem to work. Um, so we've thought about this a lot and we've, we've come up with a, 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 what we believe is a much better and much simpler um, uh, explanation using the hollow earth theory. Now, well, okay, look, that's a good place for us to take a little break. We'll come back and we'll talk more okay. about, this, uh, uh, about the source of the Earth's magnetic field, right? That's where we're going, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, uh, that's a good chance to take a break, all right? Okay. We'll do it, everybody. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guests are Kevin and Matthew Taylor. They're the authors of a book called The Land of No Horizon. You can find them on the web at tlonh.com. And you can also link, uh, link there directly from MikeHagan.com uh, from here on out. And uh, this program as well will be up archived in uh, the program archives in the next day or so. All right? Okay, we'll be back in just a few minutes with Kevin and Matthew. And in the meantime, we'll hear a little bit more from our friends, uh, C3. And again, these guys will be playing at uh, Cooper's Landing down on the river on Saturday the 23rd, and things will get going around 7 o'clock or so, but uh, you can go down there and hang out all day as far as they're concerned. 
All right, coming back at you here. It's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. It's just a few minutes after 1 on the 19th of September now, 2006. My guests are Kevin and Matthew Taylor. We're talking uh, with them live from Australia about their book and their research regarding hollow earth theories. And the book is called The Land of No Horizon. You can find them on the web also at T-L-O-N-H dot com. And you can also link there directly from MikeHagan dot com. All right, we'll come back to uh, Kevin and Matthew right now and uh, say hello. Hello. Hi, you guys. Hey, um, uh, before we continue, and we will do that, uh, Ma- Matthew, I want to continue with the, with the magnetic field uh, thread that we were on right before the break there. But but there's a question that came up uh, during the break regarding uh, the expanding Earth idea. And the question is, is it a regular expansion or is it a, uh, you know, something that that is irregular? You know, my, my, and my intuition immediately went to breathing or something almost. <laughs> um, it seems to be um, speeding up almost. Uh, and we know that 200 million years ago the Earth wasn't expanding at all. Now, we can uh, measure this. How do we measure? I mean, is it something we can currently measure with laser against the moon or something? Or um, Rather than doing it that way, um, the, the way we generally do it is, is we can, well, there's a few different ways. We can measure the age of the rocks that are being created as the new ocean floor is being created in the center, uh, on the bottom of the ocean. We can also, also um, measure the magnetic alignment in these rocks um, and, and judge just how far these these, these uh, continents and, and pieces of uh, crust have moved away from magnetic alignment. There's a few different ways. You can also look at the sediment that is on the bottom of the oceans and analyse that in, in a very, various different ways to determine the ages. And obviously nothing is, is perfect um, when we're looking at that, but and uh, the further back you go, the, the more inaccurate it will be. But, but you can get relative ages at least, right? Yeah, in other words, right. regardless if, it, if it's a billion years or, or, or a million or whatever, you can get relative ages. I think that's sort of the important exactly. thing. Yes, and from what we can see, it, tends, it seems to be expanding um, faster and faster, but it won't continue that way. It will eventually slow down, and um, then it will reach an equilibrium, and it will stop. Um, so do you believe there's sort of an evolutionary thing that it's going through? Um, it certainly is, um, and... It, depending on, on the mass of the planet and its makeup, it will depend on just how much tectonic um, movement happens. And um, if we look at Mars, for example, there is a giant gash right the way across mm. the planet, yes. which where the, it's, it's splitting open. And, and because Mars is much smaller, we could arguably say that it's, it's on a different time scale to the Earth because it has a different amount of mass or not as much gravity, and so it's, it, its process is a little different to, to the Earth. Sure. Uh, it is still going through a similar process. Hmm. All right, so... Um, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to, going to say that um, initially, uh, as the Earth formed, um, the first stage would have been the hollowing out of the centre. This would have c- compressed the planetary, planetary wall or planetary shell. Um, and, and again, and once the, that the, reaches the, the, the idea is that gravity is actually... Pushing outward. Um, we have, well, the forces of gravity are attraction, and mm. attraction from the greater mass on the surface is attracting the, the lesser mass 
further down. I mean, that's, that's basically the less compressed mass further down. Once matter in the centre of the Earth is determined, it wouldn't be super highly compressed as much as the surface, then it has less mass, oh. and the surface area has more mass. And it's just a matter so of attraction. More attraction. Yeah, um, we probably don't have enough time to go into how the theories of gravity work, but essentially it is um, likened to a shielding process. And um, so when we observe gravity in the orbits of planets and, and moons and so on, we're observing something happening outside, but when we're looking at what, what um, gravity is doing inside a mass, we find that the mass itself is shielding the, the effect of gravity from outside, and this has a bearing on, on, the, on what gravity is doing inside a planet. And because we haven't actually penetrated a planet deep enough and really um, done gravitational experiments, we, we, we just don't know exactly what, what gravity is doing there. But if these new theories of um, ether-like gravity uh, as like a pushing force are correct, and there's a n numerous different types of them, then it would suggest that uh, it's this shielding that is causing the, the inside the planet to have the force to actually um, be attracted out or pushed out is probably the, mm -hmm. the better term. Okay. What's the diameter of the Earth, you guys? Uh, 12,600 kilometres or something, roughly. All right, so... 12,756 kilo kilometres, kilometres. Okay. Uh, roughly 8,000 miles. All right, so about... 7,973 miles. So 4,000 miles to the centre. That's right. Yes. And how close has anybody ever even come to getting anywhere near um, knowing what's going on down there? Deepest about quarter eight, really. eight miles. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so a we joke. Really don't know. Yeah, that's the core. That's, that's why we need that's to investigate mine. So I don't know what the deepest mine is, but it's, mm -hmm. it would only be a couple of kilometers or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's not very far at all. <laughs> wow. All right. So, um, well. Let's talk a little bit then about the inside. I mean, for, first of all, for clarification, do, in, in your opinion, we still live on the outside of the planet, or do of we? Course, live on, or do, yeah, we don't live on the inside of the planet. No, <laughs> no. But, but there's but but there's potential for all kinds of different things to be going on in there. Yes. Well, we were talking um, before about the magnetic field and mm. what the magnetic field really is. Uh, yeah, yeah. And let, probably let's, that's let's probably that. the, the way to get to it. Yeah. yeah. Let's do um, that. So Matthew. Basically, um, we believe that, um, without going into details of how the gravity works, there is still gravitational force inside the, a hollow shell, such as the Earth, and you can, you are attracted to the inside surface, and you can walk around on the inside surface just like you can on the surface. The only difference is that um, the level of gravity is a lot less on the inside. Um, as a result, um, there would still be an atmosphere and oceans on the inside of the planet, and they would obviously... Um, be attracted to the inside of the, of the, of the planet. So it would be reversed, so to speak. Hmm. Uh, as you travel away from the inside surface and go towards the centre of the planet, the gravity gets weaker and weaker and you become weightless when you reach the centre of the planet. As a result, the layers of the atmosphere naturally settle, as they do here on, on Earth on the outside, into the, the levels of the densities of the, of the parts of the atmosphere. So uh, naturally, the lightest gases will be in the center where they get where the because the heaviest gases fall to the outside mm -hmm. now the lightest gas is hydrogen and so hydrogen would be primarily in the center of the planet now we know that hydrogen is is the, the fuel that's required for a fusion reaction uh, and that's the that's what the current theory is of how the sun works and how the sun's magnetic field is formed 
from a huge fusion reaction in the, in the sun. Now, what we're proposing inside the Earth is that the magnetic, uh, sorry, the, the um, radioactive decay in all the, the mass and the, and the material within the shell of the planet, uh, it naturally converges in on the centre. On the outside, it just radiates away into space, but, but this conversion into the centre provides enough energy to ignite a fusion reaction on this hydrogen in the centre of the planet. So that's what you believe is happening at the centre of the planet? Yes. That's, exactly that's what right. we believe the magnetic field is. Yes. Generated makes, by a fusion reaction. Yes. It makes a lot of sense because this fusion reaction has a north and south magnetic pole, but it is not strongly connected to the rotation of the, of the Earth. Hmm. This, this, these magnetic poles themselves wander in, in, a, in, in a not connected way to the rest of the planet, and you'd assume that a fusion reaction which is just floating in the centre of, of, the, of the planet... It, it would be exactly like that. It's not connected to the rest of the planet. It, it just does its own thing. Right, right. And that One of the very interesting points with the magnetic field, which has been largely ignored because it's been a problem, is the magnetic field reversals. Mm-hmm. We find that you know, every 100,000 years, or you know, it, there's a, a few different variations, we find that the north and south poles will flip, and what becomes, what's the south pole becomes the north pole, and what's the north pole becomes the south pole. And no one really understands why this happens or even uh, what could possibly cause it. And certainly with the dynamo theory, there is nothing to suggest that a process where that could happen. But with this uh, fusion reaction in the centre of the planet, there is a very logical explanation for it. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with how magnets work, but uh, if you imagine a magnet in the centre of the planet, what actually happens is this magnetism travels right through the planet and as new um, ocean floor crust is being created as the Earth's expanding, these, this uh, crust, is, when it solidifies, it locks in the magnetic alignment of the magnetic field in the planet. And we can detect where the alignment was in the, uh, later on. Now what's, what's happening increasingly is the, um, this pattern of north and south, where it is, is being locked into stone all around the Earth. And over a period of time... The North Pole pointing to the north part of the planet is causing the north part of the, part of the planet to be polarised north. And the same on the south. The south pole of the planet is becoming more and more south. Now, as you know about magnets, or anyone that's played with magnets, north and north repel, and south and south repel. Right. So over a period of time, the north magnetic pole of the, the central fusion reaction is slowly repelled away by the, the actual material, the mass of the planet, which is becoming more and more north. So it gets beyond a certain point and it will flip the magnetic field inside the planet and it will flip 180 degrees and then the whole process will slowly go the other way. Hmm. And this is the process that everyone's been looking for, for the magnetic field reversals and it's not such a simple idea and it works so well. Ah, amazing, yeah. And that's something that people are talking about right right now. There's a lot of stories in the news about... Uh, about changes in the magnetic field on the planet, and that it's that's right. and, mm. and that I think that it's lessening. Is that correct? Yes. What will happen is that as the the magnetic field is being repelled, and it's and it's the, the mass of the planet is being created more north, it'll, it'll weaken until it gets the flip, and then it will be stronger again until it weakens again and flips back. And that process, depending on how much the Earth is expanding and how much um, rock is being solidifying mm-hmm. with the magnetic field in, in locked into it. It will depend on how long it takes for it to flip each time. Right. Also, Mike, too, the, the, uh, the um, fusion reaction in the centre of the Earth uh, would provide heat and light on the inner surface. Uh, interestingly, on Mars, 
We know liquid water has flowed out of Mars and flooded the surface, and we know there's a magnetic field in the centre of, of Mars. So we know that um, there must be uh, an atmosphere uh, sufficient inside Mars to create enough pressure to, for liquid water to exist. And we know the liquid water must have been liquid because it wouldn't have flown out through the planetary shell. So therefore, the, we, we know, or we can assume, that the uh, inner magnetic field provides enough heat to provide to, to keep water uh, the water form. in a liquid form. Right. Now, when you've got heat, light, water, and atmosphere, you've got all the elements for life. Oh, sure, sure. And we know we've got mm. life in, in the most uh, uh, obscene of places. So, I mean, if the, getting back to when we really started this interview, um, there was a, the point that if you check the environment of the Earth, it would provide all the unique characteristics that humanity has. If we go to ancient biblical texts, and of course some of these things we can't really prove, there are, Genesis talks about the creation of humanity. It's really interesting, uh, you, may, you may have noticed that we put a bit of that into the book. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really interesting how it all correlates. Mm. And there's an, another very interesting point too, when we're talking about uh, the expansion of the Earth, is, is the extinction of the dinosaurs. Right, I was going to bring that up. Hmm. There's an interesting book by Steve Hurrell uh, out, which we, we both read, and what what's actually happened is that when they look at the bones of the dinosaurs of today, the bones are not strong enough to support the size of the animals. Um, gravity in is the, too in great. the present gravity we have today, in the gravity that's present on the Earth today, a dinosaur could not lift its head off the ground or could not run because it would break its bones. Also, the tendons in the neck. And, uh, bones, the, the opening for the tendons is not wide enough to support a tendon strong enough to lift the, the estimated weight of its head. Now, when we look at the extinction of the dinosaurs, they were replaced by life that was smaller, Much but still smaller, large, yeah. and then gradually life has evolved smaller and smaller mm -hmm. over the last couple hundred years. The interesting thing as well is that it's not only dinosaurs of that era that were large, but all of life, everything we see insects and dragonflies two, two feet across. Plants, everything has, has responded to a change of gravity. Now, this is something that hasn't been able to be explained, but in the expanding Earth situation, the timing and everything fits, and there's a really easy explanation. And if you think of an ice skater on, on the ice, and if she's spinning and she has her arms out, when she brings her arms down by her side, she'll spin much faster. Right. She's not spinning faster, she'll re rotate more times per minute, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if the Earth is turning once every 24 hours in its expanded state, when the matter was in one-third its size, it would have been spinning much faster. Mm. Now, when gravity is, is governed by, um, by the mass of a planet, but gravity can be counteracted by centrifugal force. And centrifugal force would have been much greater than it is today when the Earth was one-third its size. And it would have been greater on the equator, where most of equatorial regions, say, Tropic of Cancer to Capricorn, would have been where most life would have existed. And, in fact, the largest dinosaur has been found very close to the equator. And if the Earth was spinning much faster, this would counteract gravity, and the whole world would have been living in a less gravity, lower gravity state. Therefore, as the Earth expanded um, and the Earth started to slow down, doesn't this offer a, a better solution for the demise of the dinosaurs 
Because if the situations hadn't changed, why do we not have animals the size of the dinosaurs today? Right, the only thing close to have is in the water. Yes, and there's yeah, water well, the water. in the water we do, because water supports right. them. I mean, we, right. we're talking, uh, yeah, I should qualify myself there and say dry land animals here, because that's, you are correct there. But we also but, have really large uh, flightless birds as well, like mm -hmm. emus and ostriches. Yes. And they have wings and they're birds, and, and they would have flown fly, in the right. past. But due to the yeah. change in the value of gravity, they've eventually they've started not using their wings, and they're, it's not, they're no longer useful. And, they and the extension of the dinosaurs lines up with the age of the ocean floors. Uh, yeah. And this is the interesting thing. The ocean floors were created as the Earth expanded, and in line with that is the reducing size of evolving life. After dinosaurs was the great age of the mammals, the giant mammals, they were much smaller than dinosaurs, but much bigger than the, the animals we've got today. And then as you go, as you come to today, everything is smaller. We still have dragonflies, we still have crocodiles, we still have a lot of these things. But uh, the ones that survived were the smaller ones. And, the, and in, in equatorial regions, um, that, that's where your larger animals disappeared. And, and even we are sort of getting smaller, aren't we, as humans? Um, well, sure probably that. over the few thousand years we've been around, yeah. there hasn't been enough difference. Right. As it happens at the moment, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the difference is, but if you're on the North or South Pole or you're on the equator, I think it's one and a half kilograms, you are lighter on the equator <laughs> because much of the centrifugal <laughs> force. But because the Earth is turning much slower now, it's, it's barely noticeable. Hey, is that so, also another thing, too, that uh, Matt and I were discussing the other day is that this spinning ice skater is only moving her arms. We're talking about the entire mass of the planet moving out. So that would have made a greater difference still to the, spin, to the rotation speed of the planet. That's right. Because there's no matter. The matter that was in the centre, which was not moving, or which was moving really fast, is actually being moved away from the centre. So there's nothing in the centre except... Uh, yeah, matter doesn't really travel any, any slower. It's just got further to go. Mm -hmm. um, and so it makes less turns right. uh, in, in a certain period of time. Matthew, is that something we can measure as well? In other words, is the day getting longer? It would, certainly is. So yep. that would be another indication that, that the expansion is continuing. That's right, yes. And we know that is a fact. And I can't remember how much it is. It's, it's only by a few seconds mm -hmm. or something every 100 years or something. I don't know. I'd have to look at that again. The, but it's the only dispute small, there is, so too, that um, science believes that perhaps the Earth is slowing naturally, um, uh, but whether it's, you know, whether they agree that it's caused by expansion or whether it's just a natural thing, it's really hard to determine. It's Again, I'm repeating myself, well. but that's why we need to investigate. All right. There's so much stuff, there's so much evidence now that we really need to investigate this because we could have missed the most exciting thing in human hi history. Uh, Previously, the hollow earth theory was treated with great scepticism. It was all paranormal stuff and holes in the, in the, in the pol polar holes and things like that. Now there's a lot of scientific evidence that supports it, and that's why I think we need to make a shift and have a look at this. And that's, we are actually working at the moment of producing another book, and our new book will just be plainly on scientific evidence, whereas our old book actually takes you, takes you on a journey into the inner earth, and it explains... It explains uh, what you'd expect to find, uh, and we've actually worked out what the, what the environment would be inside the Earth. For instance, it's one long day. Uh, we can't be totally sure of the temperature that will be reaching the surface on the inside, but if we look at everything else, there's, everything seems to point to the fact that humanity had part of its origins from, from the inner world. 
Yeah, it's a it's it's amazing, and and the deeper I got into the book, and actually there's some great illustrations in there as well too, uh, for people to get a better grasp on this from you know from their mind's eye. That's uh, one thing about the radio is it's sometimes very difficult to describe these concepts without. Uh, I know while I'm talking on the radio, <laughs> I'm, I'm moving my hands or hands around trying to describe it <laughs> <Right>. myself. But, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, uh, you're doing a good job, and we can point people to the website and to the book uh, uh, if, if they're if they're interested in uh, in in deeper information. Um, uh, look, one, one thing, Mike, if I could just mention about the book, yes, is it's not written just for scientific minds. It's written for ordinary people's minds. We're mm-hmm. aware that most people aren't terribly scientifically versed, so we've used all these diagrams. And Matthew's done all the diagrams. He's a whiz on that area. But we've used all these diagrams in simple text. We try not to stick with technological terms and so on. We've tried to keep it really simple and the more difficult parts of the book to explain, we've used lots of diagrams and and scenarios and different things, comparisons. So it's really a book that a 12-year-old could read or anyone could read and understand it and follow it. All right. Um, Look, we've got a few minutes before we need to take another break and there's a a question that's come up a number of times now in the chat room and it's a question about abiotic oil. And they said, uh, do the guys have any comments on... Uh, the the possible abiotic origin of petroleum. You know, we've got all of this talk these days about peak oil and whether it uh, exists or doesn't exist in great quantity and if there's more of it or if it's replenished or all these questions. Is there? You're well, that's, that's really Matthew's area because Matthew yeah. has been doing some research on that. And uh, so, uh, you're referring to oil that has not come from uh, from life. Is that correct? Right. Well, something that's not decayed animals and plants. Yeah, I, I haven't read a lot about that. Um, Certainly, um, looking at coal and certainly and, uh, and certainly a lot of oil, it does come from a biological um, background. But um, I haven't I haven't done a lot of research on that sort of thing. But there certainly doesn't seem to be as much as as um, I mean the majority of oil and coal and so on that we find seems to to be a, a mishmash of, of life from all different parts of the world from some collisions and and cat- catastrophes in the past. It seems to be from very big impacts or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about that sort of thing with oil, I'm not so sure because I haven't read a lot about it. Uh, but I'd certainly be interested in, in having a look because these sort of things, we, they all need to be worked into the theory. And, right, right. You know, I mean, we know, we know so little, you know. Mm. That's the important thing, Mike, is that with anything like this, it really, the real truth is to be open-minded and just because we believe something for a long time, it doesn't mean that it's never under investigation again. Right. And even as we found out things, like this book, was, as you said, was published in 2001, there's so many amazing things that have come up, even just the last 12 months. Um, and, and so things that support much greater than some of our ideas, that, that probably isn't, in, it isn't quite like that in the book because it was written a few, as a few years ago. But uh, certainly we're coming to a point where we need to say, well, look, um, we need to have a look at everything again. We've looked at it with an open mind um, because we've mi- we could have missed the most exciting discovery in human history. That's what we yeah. believe. Perhaps when um, we come back from after the break, we could talk about seismology and earthquakes. Sure, That's certainly. another fascinating area, um, which, again, seems to, to suggest that the Earth is actually hollow. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah. you know, there have been some really interesting... Uh, Events over the last few years, you know, uh, and mm. that, that 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 have that's gotten the attention of the whole world. So, definitely, definitely. All right, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Okay. 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 
All right, everybody. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My guests are Kevin and Matthew Taylor. And you can find information about them on the web at tlonh.com. Their book is called The Land of No Horizon, and we're talking about hollow earth theories and some of the amazing uh, uh, ideas that uh, that roll out from that. So, all right, uh, we'll play a little bit more music here from our friend C3, and we'll say hello to my other friend Cheryl Clapton, who just walked in the door there, and I haven't seen her in a long time. She'll be playing some music for you in about a half an hour, doing it up until, I don't know, 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, probably. But great to see Cheryl again. And... Uh, as I said, one more time, a little bit from C3. This is Beso Profundo.
Beso Profundo. That's more C3. And uh, we'll hear one more from them to close out the program in just a little while. It's Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, let's see, we've got about 15, 20 minutes or so to continue our conversation with Kevin and Matthew Taylor, the authors of The Land of No Horizon. And one more time on the web at tlonh.com. And you can link there always from my site at mikehagan.com. All right, uh, Kevin, Matthew, thanks for sticking around. And mm-hmm. let's continue. Uh, Matthew, you wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, about seismology. About seismology, yeah. Uh, I guess, um, uh, basically, if we're, if we're claiming that the Earth is hollow, then surely, you know, with our, uh, all the earthquakes around the world and, and seismology, we must be able to see whether that's correct or not by looking at, at that evidence. And, and uh, we were quite surprised when we started investigating this to find that um, there's earthquakes all around the world, but we never, ever receive earthquakes or vibrations or anything from a depth below uh, 670 kilometres deep. I'm not sure what that is in miles, um, but this is fascinating. And one of the other interesting things is as well, um, if there is an earthquake on one side of the Earth, then we find that there is a shadow on the other side of the Earth which does not receive any vibration. That's interesting. That I, earthquake. I, yeah, I have, I have, I have a friend who actually watches. Um, well, used to. He he passed away recently, but his name was Charlie Plyler, and he was an old Navy. Uh, Intel guy, and he listened to what he calls ELF, extremely low frequency, mm-hmm. and he monitored ELF waves for many, many years. And any time there was a, uh, a quake of any significance, he was able to show all of these different uh, reactions around the planet. And yeah, he did say that there was something special that happened on what's called the antipode, the opposite yep. side of the of, of the That's globe. Right. Basically, what happens is. When an earthquake forms or occurs, vibrations are sent out in every direction from that point, uh, from the focus, um, but the vibrations are in different types. Uh, and the two main types are shear waves and pressure waves. Now, if, um, the difference is um, shear waves are... If, say, we've got a, I've got a, a long spring. If I um, wiggle the spring from side to side then that's shear waves, and you'll see the waves going along from, from where I'm wiggling it. Um, if I grab a bit of the spring and pull it towards me and let it go, then the shock wave goes along parallel to the, to the direction that the spring, the spring is, is um, in, and they're called pressure waves. And we find that they travel at different speeds, and they have a different shadow effect on the other side of the Earth. And these have been used to try and determine what the centre of the Earth is like. Now, because um, what, we, what we find is shear waves do not go to the other side of the Earth at all, but we find pressure waves do, but there's a gap where they don't hit, and, and they're quite, not quite sure, or not where they don't hit, but where they, they're a lot less um, visible. And trying to figure out what is actually happening here, um, what the current accepted theory is, is that there has to be a liquid um, outer core, and this liquid outer core um, being liquid uh, does not allow the, the shear waves to travel through it. And that's the only way we can explain with a solid Earth why we don't have, have um, the, the, the uh, seismic, seismic waves going right through the planet. 
um, the fact that there's a liquid boundary there is the only thing to stop it. Um, but this doesn't necessarily seem like it's the case. And if we have a solid core in the very centre inside that, we would still expect to get some vibrations or some earthquakes or something from there in order to, to detect it. But the truth is we get absolutely nothing. So, so this is, um, is, is how they've figured out or how they've came up with the, the, the actual structure of the Earth as they see it today. Whereas what we've done is we've, we've actually looked at a slightly different way and we've considered that this shell of the Earth is all there is and that that's the only place that, that um, uh, seismic waves can travel to the other side of the Earth. And um, what we've actually done is we've done something quite, quite different to the currently accepted theory. What they currently believe is that as you travel down into the planet, you're progressively getting denser. Now, because the density increases when you get lower, if you have a seismic wave traveling down or off on an angle, it'll actually curve back up to the surface because when it goes through a higher density, it will go faster. This is what they're assuming. But with our theory, because as you get deeper into the planet, it becomes less dense, these lines of, of um, vibrations actually curve along with the planet. And we've, uh, it's a bit hard to explain over the radio without a diagram, but we can uh, show in a much simpler way why the, the um, shadow effect exists. And that's because the uh, shear waves can curve around with the planet, but only so far until they hit the surface, and then they can't reflect off the surface and continue on. And that's where they, the shadow wave starts from. But with the pressure waves, they can reflect and they can get past that point, but they leave a gap. And this is a much simpler explanation to why there is a shadow zone on the other side of the planet. Hmm, very interesting. Mm. All right. Um, let me ask you... Uh, Mike, another thing that is uh, interesting we haven't just touched on yes. is crater anomalies on planets. Hmm. What about the moon? Uh, There's a question that comes up here. Do you guys think the moon is hollow? Yes, certainly. Yeah, well, now, if we take the, uh, the moon, there's a, the, the Mare Oriental crater on the moon is an interesting crater. Mm-hmm. If this is cratered by an impact, um, the floor of the crater actually follows the curvature of the moon. In other words, if you really look at it topographically, uh, the, the floor of the crater is actually higher than the walls around it. If mm-hmm. you imagine the moon is a solid object mm-hmm. and it's been impacted by a celestial impact, how is it that the floor of the crater, the floor of the impact is higher than, than the walls of the crater itself. But that is a fact. Also, the, uh, the Calaris Basin on Mercury is the same. Now, what we believe happens is this. If you get a small crater, it just creates a, a bowl shape. Uh, when you get a crater, a medium-sized crater, like 25 kilometers to 130 kilometers in diameter, it is a shallower bowl, but it has a little point in the center, it has a little peak right. in the center. And anything bigger than that has a convex floor following the curvature of the planet with concentric rings. And we believe this is caused by the rebounding of the surface of the, of the planetary uh, shell. So when you get an impact, say the Mare Oriental or the Calaris Basin on Mercury, the impact deflects the planetary shell inwards and then, and then it returns back out to follow the balance of gravity. Mm. And so the floor of the, of the crater actually reassumes the curvature of the planet and that's why the floor is, is higher than the walls um, this would not happen or you would not imagine, imagine this to happen in a solid compressed planet what we'd end up with is, is a huge dent in the planet 
and that then it may fill up with lava and so on but in all these cases the original floor is what is in the floor of the crater and th this can only be explained by the deflecting in of a, of a planetary wall to create these shapes yeah, one of the other things we should mention as well is is effectively um, if you get a planet that's made of a certain type of rock that rock has a certain amount of structure a strength in its structure now, and, and if you, you can't bend a piece of rock but if you get a, a planet a certain size, you get bigger and bigger and bigger, effectively the, the rock structure is staying the same, but the, the strength of gravity is getting stronger. And eventually the strength of gravity will be greater than the strength of the, of the structure within the rock and it will then be able to shape the planet. And what we find is planets that get to a certain size, around about 150 kilometres in diameter, start to become very spherical. And what this is, is the actual planet starting to reform and shape under its own gravitational um, effect and, and, and actually hollow out and, and cause a spherical form. And this is, this is what we see, of course, with the Earth, although it's slightly flattened at the poles because it's rotating and the, and, um, the centrifugal force is bulging it at the equator. Um, this is also what, what we'd expect to see um, with uh, any earthquake. We have vibrations that, that uh, stay for ages, like the Earth is, is vibrating like a bell. That's exactly what's happening. These vibrations of the, the surface waves, which is the third type of, surf of uh, vibration after earthquakes, just travel around around the Earth for ages before they dissipate. Hmm. Now, in a solid planet, we wouldn't expect this to be quite the same. It would dampen it a lot, lot more quickly. Okay. All right. Um, let's see. While we're I can another thing that's interesting, too, is a thing called the geoid. Yes, and The yes. geoid is irre irregularities in the uh, surface gravity of the Earth. And if we look at the sea, we, we tend to see the sea as being really level. But in actual fact, there are hills and valleys in the, the sea ocean. that never move. And this is called the geoid. Now, when you go to a deep sea trench, um, the sea dips about one and a half metres over a trench of, say, 11 kilometres deep because the different gravitational forces enact action on the floor of the ocean. And so the ocean actually hills up either side of the, uh, of the trench. But the geoid is something else. The geoid is an irregularity in the sea surface. It has hills and valleys that never change. And these irregularities are caused by different gravity densities in the planet. Now, the difference is enormous. The sea level at uh, Sri Lanka is actually 650 feet lower than it is off the northeast coast of New Guinea and around Iceland. Hmm. Now, the problem for scientists is that these, if, if these density differences in the matter of the planet are far down below the surface. They have to be so huge because of the distance uh, factor that gravity reduces over distance um, that they cannot explain this. Hmm. Um, but in actual fact, they, they, never, they, they never move, they always stay in the same place, and they're so gradual you can't see them. But that's, that's the fact that uh, Sri Lanka is 650 feet lower sea level than off uh, New Guinea and Iceland. So what we're actually um, saying is that um, the amount of gravity that we feel on the surface of the planet, because the Earth is actually hollow, is actually formed by a lot less mass than we believe. And, and, and naturally, uh, we can't actually detect exactly how much mass is in the Earth. We're just guessing. Um, but, and, we're, and we're obviously out by a very large factor, but we're out equally with all of the planets. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a common ratio that we're out by. And these, these uh, hills and valleys on the ocean floor caused by different levels of gravity on the planet are formed by de density differences in the shell of the planet. 
and this is much better explained because because all the mass is much closer to you, these density differences can have more of an effect and it makes more sense on a, on a hollow planet than it does on a solid planet. This is yet another, another um, uh, thing where the hollow Earth theory has a much simpler explanation for these, these uh, anomalies. That's, that's the thing too, Mark, that all the explanations that uh, we, we, we've come up with seem to be so simple. It's almost like when the jigsaw puzzle piece falls into place, it's, ah, oh, that's easy. Um, whereas some of the theories that have been put forward have been tacked onto other theories and in long lines of, of, of possibilities. Uh, and sometimes there comes a point where uh, there needs to be a bit of an overview to say, does this sound correct or not? And often when things are really complicated with huge formulas, it's because it's, it's just not quite right. right. And we, we should say as well, I mean, our ideas um, in this book and our theory, it's not just us and what, what we're mm -hmm. thinking and what we've found. We're actually writing on the back of such a huge number of different scientists in a lot of different areas, and there seems to be quite a lot of really exciting stuff happening at the moment. We're in all different areas of science. There's, for example, just gravity. No, everything everything yeah. is, is going crazy. Hey, you guys, l l let me ask you one more big one before we before we close out. All right? Mm -hmm. uh, th there's the idea that there's water, atmosphere, etc. inside. Uh, obviously means that there's great, great potential for life. We see life anywhere. We see water and atmosphere on the surface, at least. Um, is there a connection between life? Right, well, my, one, thing that I think that one thing that I think is important to say here is the environment in the center of the Earth will be much more ideal for the evolution of life. We have to contend with winters and summers and different climatic conditions. Days Inside the Earth, well. you would have a constant world, constant warmth, and that would be ideal for the evolution of life. You've got no night. It's only just one long situation. Now, if you can imagine that a life evolving on the outside surface had to be much more complex to contend with all the different environments on the Earth, inside it wouldn't. So therefore, you'd imagine that uh, life could evolve much faster. And if, if the ultimate goal of evolution is intelligence, it would certainly be reached on the environment inside the Earth before it's reached on the outside of the Earth. And we feel there's evidence to suggest, particularly if you go to biblical texts and things like that, depends whether you're religious or not. Um, the, if you look at it as a history book, there's so much evidence to suggest that humanity was created from, from that environment, and that's why we have all the problems with the, in, in living in the environment we're in now. Um, but definitely, if the ideal surface temperature exists on the inner surface, it, it would appear to be a much better suited environment for the evolution of life in the outside surface, which means that we should progress far at a faster rate, because plants can fruit and grow all year round. Whereas, like in America, there you have you know several months of winter where nothing grows, right. and then you've got 50% of every 24 hours there's darkness. Um, so, and then you've got climates like in tropical areas. If you look at the equatorial regions, you know things grow much faster and and so on whereas in, in uh, colder climates, things are much slower. So we'd, we'd have to sort of deduce from that that the environment inside the Earth would be very ideal for the evolution of intelligent life. Um, without approving it, as well, it seems um, a logical thought. Other planets, for example, like Mars, who, uh, where we believe there was obviously liquid water and possibly still is liquid water and pressurised atmosphere and warmth and, and light as well, there could quite possibly have been life inside Mars. We know that the, the atmosphere is only 1% of the Earth's atmosphere on Mars. Right. So life, uh, water can't exist, it just simply boils away. So we, we, don't, we doubt whether life can exist in its 
current climate, but certainly on the inside, it's mm-hmm. quite quite a possibility. And, there, and there's quite a bit of talk about uh, perhaps liquid water uh, underneath the surface of some of the moons of Jupiter and even perhaps Saturn yes. now. Yes. Um, that's, that's yes, correct. and I believe on, um, on the Europa, on the moon, one too, of the mm-hmm. There was a sudden eruption of ice somewhere on the moon recently as well. And, of course, the moon would be hollow and it would have gases inside, even though it can't hold gases on its surface. It has to be a certain amount of mass to compete with the solar wind for a planet to have its to have an atmosphere. Hmm. That's right. So wow. It's not just the Earth, it's all the planets, and, and they're all in varying ways, and it's fascinating, really. It is. The whole thing is fascinating, and I'm and I'm I'm glad we had a chance to to talk about it. To to uh, if nothing else, uh, get people to uh, to take another look at something that they may have considered, uh, you know, ridiculous. But it certainly, uh, if nothing else, requires further investigation. You guys, I, I congratulate you on the work. What's the latest? You say there's a, there's um, as we mentioned, the book's been out for some four or five years, and I, I know there's been a lot happening. What, what what's the biggest thing on your radar these days? Um, well, I think um, looking at gravity is, is it's one thing we haven't been able to talk about really today. But um, I've been reading a few books lately on quite different scientists who all have a, a similar uh, idea of how gravity actually works. And um, using these principles, we, we can show quite easily how a planet can, can become externally dense and hollow and expand. And um, so we've been looking at this, and we've also been doing a lot more research on um, the magnetic field and, and uh, seismology as well, and so this will be quite a big part of our new book. Um, but you know, if anyone has any other ideas as well, that they can go to our website and send us some feedback. We're always happy to hear from people, and and we've had quite a lot of people actually contact us and, and tell us certain things that have led to other big discoveries as well. It's a, it's a it's a it's in progress all the time. We're always looking at new things. Right, right. right. So that's that's why it's so fascinating. All right. Well, look, uh, we're about at the end of our time here, and I, w- I want to actually t- uh, tell the uh, the listeners actually out there, for the people who have listened throughout the whole program, here's the payoff. I have an extra book. Uh, Kevin and Matthew sent me uh, two copies of The Land of No Horizon. Mine's all marked up, but I've got another one that's not, and the first person that emails me and uh, uh, tells me that they want it, I'll, I'll, I'll send it off to you. Excellent. And... <laughs> and um, and you guys, uh, we'll stay in touch. I look forward to, to hearing more about your future research, and uh, perhaps we can talk again when the new book comes out and uh, and, and more of this stuff is uh, is revealed. Thanks very much, Mike. That'd be really good. Cool. Cool. Thank you um, It'll probably be the end of next year before our next book is out. Um, and whenever we do research, it seems to lead to more and more research all the time. It tends right, to put right, it back, right. but, but we're not going to give up on it. And the next book will be a popular science book. It'll be more science uh, than our previous book, uh, and I think that but it'll be written again in, ta- in, in the kind of way that people will be able to follow it without a science degree. All right, well, we look forward to it, and again, you guys, thanks for the work, and we'll be in touch, okay? Thanks very much. Thanks for having us on your program. Take care, guys. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody, that's Kevin and Matthew Taylor, the authors of The Land of No Horizon. You can find information on the web at TLO. NH.com, and you can link up there uh, from my site directly at MikeHagan.com, and I'll get this show up on the web and the archives in the next day or so, and you can download it, listen to it again, lots of interesting information, and uh, I encourage people to look into it if it uh, if it strikes you, okay? All right, we've got uh, just a couple minutes left here. We'll play one more from C3 on the way out. 
I'll say uh, thanks one more time to Kevin and Matthew, also to the guys from C3 for stopping in. Thanks to everybody else for listening. Next week we've got uh, Yeshe Dorje, and we'll talk about healing with sound. Should be interesting. I hope you all can come back, and uh, I'll see you in a week. Okay, one more time, C3, and stick around. Cheryl Clapton will be rolling in in just a minute here to play some tunes for you for the next couple hours.